of the days. Thank you for joining me for the second installment of Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. If you're reading along at home, today's episode encompasses chapters 6 through 8. Do you have your tea? Today I have a mint and like fruity blend. (laughs) Alright, let's get started. And her uncle, the rector, had for some years been her sole guardian. He was not, as we are aware, much adapted, either by nature or habits, to have the charge of a young girl. He had taken little trouble about her education. Probably he would have taken none if she, finding herself neglected, had not grown anxious on her own account, and asked, every now and then, for a little attention, and for the means of acquiring such amount of knowledge as could not be dispensed with. Still, she had a depressing feeling that she was inferior, that her attainments were fewer than were usually possessed by girls of her age and station, and very glad was she to avail herself of the kind offer made by her cousin Hortense soon after the arrival of the latter at Hollow's Mill, to teach her French and fine needlework. Chapter 6. Coriolanus Mademoiselle Moore had that morning a somewhat absent-minded pupil. Caroline forgot, again and again, the explanations which were given to her. However, she still bore with unclouded mood the chidings her inattention brought upon her. Sitting in the sunshine near the window, she seemed to receive with its warmth a kind influence, which made her both happy and good. Thus disposed, she looked her best, and her best was a pleasing vision. To her had not been denied the gift of beauty. It was not absolutely necessary to know her in order to like her. She was fair enough to please even at the first view. Her shape suited her age. It was girlish, light, and pliant. Every curve was neat, every limb proportionate. Her face was expressive and gentle. Her eyes were handsome, and gifted at times with a winning beam that stole into the heart with a language that spoke softly to the affections. Her mouth was very pretty. She had a delicate skin and a fine flow of brown hair, which she knew how to arrange with taste. Curls became her, and she possessed them in picturesque profusion. Her style of dress announced taste in the wearer, very unobtrusive in fashion, far from costly in material, but suitable in color to the fair complexion with which it contrasted, and in make to the slight form which it draped. Her present winter garb was of merino, the same soft shade of brown as her hair, the little collar round her neck lay over a pink ribbon, and was fastened with a pink knot. She wore no other decoration. So much for Caroline Helston's appearance. As to her character or intellect, if she had any, they must speak for themselves in due time. Her connections are soon explained. She was a child of parents separated soon after her birth, in consequence of disagreement of disposition. Her mother was the half-sister of Mr. Moore's father. Thus, though there was no mixture of blood, she was, in a distant sense, the cousin of Robert, Louis, and Hortense. Her father was the brother of Mr. Hellstone, a man of the character friends desire not to recall, after death has once settled all earthly accounts. He had rendered his wife unhappy. The reports which were known to be true concerning him had given an air of probability to those which were falsely circulated respecting his better-principled brother. Caroline had never known her mother, as she was taken from her in infancy, and had not since seen her. Her father died comparatively young. Mademoiselle Moore, for her part, delighted in the task, because it gave her importance. She liked to lord it a little over a docile yet quick pupil. She took Caroline precisely at her own estimate, as an irregularly taught, even ignorant girl, and when she found that she made rapid and eager progress, it was to no talent, no application, in the scholar she ascribed to the improvement, but entirely to her own superior method of teaching. When she found that Caroline, unskilled in routine, had a knowledge of her own, desultory but varied, the discovery caused her no surprise, for she still imagined that from her conversation had the girl unawares gleaned these treasures. She thought it even forced to feel that her pupil knew much on subjects whereof she knew little. The idea was not logical, but Hortense had perfect faith in it. Mademoiselle, who prided herself on possessing un esprit positif and on entertaining a decided preference for dry studies, kept her young cousin to the same as closely as she could. She worked her unrelentingly in the grammar of the French language, assigning her as the most improving exercise she could devise, interminable analyses logiques. These analyses were by no means a source of particular pleasure to Caroline, she thought she could have learned French just as well without them, and grudged excessively the time spent in pondering over propositions, principles, et incidents, in deciding the incident determinative and the incident applicative, in examining whether the proposition was plein, 
elliptic, or implicit. Sometimes she lost herself in the maze, and when so lost, she would, now and then, while Hortense was rummaging her drawers upstairs, an unaccountable occupation in which she spent a large portion of each day, arranging, disarranging, rearranging, and counterarranging, carry her book to Robert in the counting house, and get the rough place made smooth by his aid. Mr. Moore possessed a clear, tranquil brain of his own. Almost as soon as he looked at Caroline's little difficulties, they seemed to dissolve beneath his eye. In two minutes, he would explain all, and two words give the key to the puzzle. She thought if Hortense could only teach like him, how much faster she might learn. Repaying him by an admiring and grateful smile, rather shut at his feet than lifted to his face, she would leave the mill reluctantly to go back to the cottage, and then, while she completed the exercise, or worked out the sum, for Mademoiselle Moore taught her arithmetic too, she would wish nature had made her a boy instead of a girl, that she might ask Robert to let her be his clerk, and sit with him in the counting house, instead of sitting with Hortense in the parlor. Occasionally, but this happened very rarely, she spent the evening at Hollow's cottage. Sometimes during these visits, Moore was away attending a market. Sometimes he was gone to Mr. York's. Often he was engaged with a male visitor in another room. But sometimes, too, he was at home, disengaged, free to talk with Caroline. When this was the case, the evening hours passed on wings of light. They were gone before they were counted. There was no room in England so pleasant as that small parlor when the three cousins occupied it. Hortense, when she was not teaching or scolding or cooking, was far from ill-humored. It was her custom to relax towards evening, and to be kind to her young English kinswoman. There was a means, too, of rendering her delightful by inducing her to take her guitar and sing and play. She then became quite good-natured, and as she played with skill and had a well-toned voice, it was not disagreeable to listen to her. It would have been absolutely agreeable, except that her formal and self-important character modulated her strains, as it impressed her manners and molded her countenance. Mr. Moore, released from the business yoke, was, if not lively himself, a willing spectator of Caroline's liveliness, a complacent listener to her talk, a ready respondent to her questions. He was something agreeable to sit near, to hover round, to address and look at. Sometimes he was better than this, almost animated, quite gentle and friendly. The drawback was that by the next morning he was sure to be frozen up again, and however much he seemed, in his quiet way, to enjoy these social evenings, he rarely contrived their recurrence. This circumstance puzzled the inexperienced head of his cousin. If I had a means of happiness at my command, she thought, I would employ that means often. I would keep it bright with use and not let it lie for weeks aside till it gets rusty. Yet she was careful not to put in practice her own theory. Much as she liked an evening visit to the cottage, she never paid one unasked. Often, indeed, when pressed by Hortense to come, she would refuse, because Robert did not second, or but slightly seconded, the request. This morning was the first time he had ever, of his own unprompted will, given her an invitation, and then he had spoken so kindly that in hearing him she had received a sense of happiness sufficient to keep her glad for the whole day. The morning passed as usual. Mademoiselle, ever breathlessly busy, spent in bustling from kitchen to parlor, now scolding Sarah, now looking over Caroline's exercise or hearing her repetition lesson. However faultlessly these tasks were achieved, she never commended. It was a maxim with her that praise is inconsistent with a teacher's dignity, and that blame, in more or less unqualified measure, is indispensable to it. She thought incessant reprimand, severe or slight, quite necessary to the maintenance of her authority, and if no possible error was to be found in the lesson, it was a pupil's carriage or air or dress or mien which required correction. The usual affray took place about the dinner, which meal, when Sarah at last brought it into the room, she almost flung upon the table, with a look that expressed quite plainly, I never dished such stuff in my life before, it's not fit for dogs. Notwithstanding Sarah's scorn, it was a savory repast enough. The soup was a sort of puree of dried peas, which Mademoiselle had prepared amidst bitter lamentations that in this desolate country of England no haricot beans were to be had. Then came a dish of meat, nature unknown, but supposed to be miscellaneous, singularly chopped up with crumbs of bread, seasoned uniquely, though not unpleasantly, and baked in a mold, a queer but by no means unpalatable dish. Greens, oddly bruised, formed the accompanying vegetable, and a pâté of fruit, conserved after a recipe derived by Madame Gerard Moore's grandmère, and from the taste of which it appeared probable that melasse had been substituted for sugar, completed the dinner. Caroline had no objection to this Belgian cookery. Indeed, she rather liked it for a change, and it was well she did so, 
for had she evinced any disrelish thereof, such manifestation would have injured her in Mademoiselle's good graces forever. A positive crime might have been more easily pardoned than a symptom of distaste for the foreign comestibles. Soon after dinner, Caroline coaxed her governess cousin upstairs to dress. This maneuver required management. To have hinted that the jupon, camisole, and curl papers were odious objects, or indeed other than quite meritorious points, would have been a felony. Any premature attempt to urge their disappearance was therefore unwise, and would be likely to issue in the persevering wear of them during the whole day. Carefully avoiding rocks and quicksands, however, the pupil, on pretense of requiring a change of scene, contrived to get the teacher aloft, and once in the bedroom she persuaded her that it was not worthwhile returning thither, and that she might as well make her toilet now. And while Mademoiselle delivered a solemn homily on her own surpassing merit and disregarding all frivolities of fashion, Caroline denuded her of the camisole, invested her with a decent gown, arranged her collar, hair, etc., and made her quite presentable. But Hortense would put the finishing touches herself, and these finishing touches consisted in a thick handkerchief tied round the throat and a large, servant-like black apron which spoiled everything. On no account would Mademoiselle have appeared in her own house without the thick handkerchief and the voluminous apron. The first was a positive matter of morality. It was quite improper not to wear a fichu. The second was the ensign of a good housewife. She appeared to think that by means of it she somehow effected a large saving in her brother's income. She had, with her own hands, made and presented to Caroline similar equipments, and the only serious quarrel they had ever had, and which still left a soreness in the elder cousin's soul, had arisen from the refusal of the younger one to accept of and profit by these elegant presents. "'I wear a high dress and a collar,' said Caroline, "'and I should feel suffocated with a handkerchief in addition, and my short aprons do quite as well as that very long one. I would rather make no change.' Yet Hortense, by dint of perseverance, would probably have compelled her to make a change, had not Mr. Moore chanced to overhear a dispute on the subject, and decided that Caroline's little aprons would suffice, and that, in his opinion, as she was still but a child, she might for the present dispense with the fichu, especially as her curls were long and almost touched her shoulders. There was no appeal against Robert's opinion, therefore his sister was compelled to yield, but she disapproved entirely of the piquant neatness of Caroline's costume and the ladylike grace of her appearance. Something more solid and homely she would have considered beaucoup plus convenable. The afternoon was devoted to sewing. Mademoiselle, like most Belgian ladies, was specially skillful with her needle. She by no means thought it waste of time to devote unnumbered hours to fine embroidery, sight-destroying lacework, marvelous netting and knitting, and above all, to most elaborate stocking mending. She would give a day to the mending of two holes in a stocking any time, and think her mission nobly fulfilled when she had accomplished it. It was another of Caroline's troubles to be condemned to learn this foreign style of darning, which was done stitch by stitch, so as exactly to imitate the fabric of the stocking itself. A weariful process, but considered by Hortense Gerard, and by her ancestresses before her for long generations back, as one of the first duties of woman. She herself had had a needle, cotton, and a fearfully torn stocking put into her hand while she yet wore a child's coif on her little black head. Her whole fate in the darning line had been exhibited to company ere she was six years old, and when she first discovered that Caroline was profoundly ignorant of the most essential of attainments, she could have wept with pity over her miserably neglected youth. No time did she lose in seeking up a hopeless pair of hose, of which the heels were entirely gone, and in setting the ignorant English girl to repair the deficiency. This task had been commenced two years ago, and Caroline had the stockings in her work bag yet. She did a few rows every day, by way of penance for the expiation of her sins. They were a grievous burden to her. She would have much liked to put them in the fire, and once Mr. Moore, who had observed her sitting and sighing over them, had proposed a private incremation in the counting-house. But to this proposal, Caroline knew it would have been impolitic to accede. The result could only be a fresh pair of hose, probably in worse condition. She adhered, therefore, to the ills she knew. All the afternoon the two ladies sat and sewed, till the eyes and fingers and even the spirits of one of them were weary. The sky since dinner had darkened, it had begun to rain again, to pour fast. Secret fears began to steal on Caroline that Robert would be persuaded by Mr. Sykes or Mr. York to remain at Winbury till it cleared, and of that there appeared no present chance. Five o'clock struck, and time stole on, still the clouds streamed. A sighing wind whispered in the roof-trees of the cottage. Day seemed already closing. The parlor fire shed on the clear hearth a glow ready as at twilight. It will not be fair till the moon rises. 
pronounced Mademoiselle Moore. Consequently, I feel assured that my brother will not return till then. Indeed, I should be sorry if he did. We will have coffee. It would be vain to wait for him. I am tired. May I leave my work now, cousin? You may, since it grows too dark to see to do it well. Fold it up, put it carefully in your bag, then step into the kitchen and desire Sarah to bring in the gauter, or tea as you call it. But it is not yet struck six. He may still come. He will not, I tell you. I can calculate his movements. I understand my brother. Suspense is irksome, disappointment bitter. All the world has, some time or other, felt that. Caroline, obedient to orders, passed into the kitchen. Sarah was making a dress for herself at the table. You were to bring in coffee, said the young lady in a spiritless tone, and then she leaned her arm and head against the kitchen mantelpiece and hung listlessly over the fire. How low you seem, miss, but it's all because your cousin keeps you so close to work. It's a shame. Nothing of the kind, Sarah, was the brief reply. Oh, but I know it is. You're fit to cry just this minute, for nothing else but because you've sat still the whole day. It would make a kitten doll to be mewed up so. Sarah, does your master often come home early from market when it is wet? Never, hardly, but just today, for some reason, he has made a difference. What do you mean? He has come. I am certain I saw Murgatroyd lead his horse into the yard by the back way when I went to get some water at the pump five minutes since. He was in the counting house with Joe Scott, I believe. You are mistaken. What should I be mistaken for? I know his horse, surely. But you did not see himself? I heard him speak, though. He was saying something to Joe Scott about having settled all concerning ways and means, and that there would be a new set of frames in the mill before another week passed, and that this time he would get four soldiers from Stillbro Barracks to guard the wagon. Sarah, are you making a gown? Yes. Is it a handsome one? Beautiful. Get the coffee ready. I'll finish cutting out that sleeve for you, and I'll give you some trimming for it. I have some narrow satin ribbon of a color that will just match it. You're very kind, miss. Be quick, there's a good girl. But first put your master's shoes in the hearth. He'll take his boots off when he comes in. I hear him. He is coming. Miss, you're cutting the stuff wrong. So I am, but it is only a snip. There is no harm done. The kitchen door opened. Mr. Moore entered very wet and cold. Caroline half turned from her dressmaking occupation, but renewed it for a moment as if to gain a minute's time for some purpose. Bent over the dress, her face was hidden. There was an attempt to settle her features and veil their expression, which failed. When she at last met Mr. Moore, her countenance beamed. We had ceased to expect you. They asserted you would not come, she said. But I promised to return soon. You expected me, I suppose. No, Robert. I dared not when it rained so fast. And you were wet and chilled. Change everything. If you took cold, I should... We should blame ourselves in some measure. I am not wet through. My riding coat is waterproof. Dry shoes are all I require. There. The fire is pleasant after facing the cold wind and rain for a few miles. He stood on the kitchen hearth. Caroline stood beside him. Mr. Moore, while enjoying the genial glow, kept his eyes directed towards the glittering brasses on the shelf above. Chancing for an instant to look down, his glance rested on an uplifted face, flushed, smiling, happy, shaded with silky curls, lit with fine eyes. Sarah was going into the parlor with the tray. A lecture from her mistress detained her there. Moore placed his hand a moment on his young cousin's shoulder, stooped, and left a kiss on her forehead. Oh, said she, as if the action had unsealed her lips. I was miserable when I thought you would not come. I'm almost too happy now. Are you happy, Robert? Do you like to come home? I think I do. Tonight, at least. Are you certain you are not fretting about your frames and your business and the war? Not just now. Are you positive you don't feel Hollow's Cottage too small for you and narrow and dismal? At this moment, no. Can you affirm that you are not bitter at heart because rich and great people forget you? No more questions. You are mistaken if you think I am anxious to curry favor with rich and great people. I only want means, a position, a career, which your own talent and goodness shall win you. You were made to be great. You shall be great. I wonder now, if you spoke honestly out of your heart, what recipe you would give me for acquiring the same greatness. But I know it better than you know it yourself. Would it be efficacious? Would it work? Yes. Poverty, misery, bankruptcy. Oh, life is not what you think it, Lena. But you are what I think it. I am not. 
You were better then. Far worse. No, far better. I know you were good. How do you know it? You look so, and I feel you are so. Where do you feel it? In my heart. Ah, you judge me with your heart, Lena. You should judge me with your head. I do, and then I'm quite proud of you. Robert, you cannot tell all my thoughts about you. Mr. Moore's dark face mustered color. His lips smiled, and yet were compressed. His eyes laughed, and yet he resolutely knit his brow. Think meanly of me, Lena, said he. Men, in general, are a sort of scum, very different to anything of which you have an idea. I have no pretension to be better than my fellows. If you did, I should not esteem you so much. It is because you are modest that I have such confidence in your merit. Are you flattering me? he demanded, turning sharply upon her and searching her face with an eye of acute penetration. No, she said softly, laughing at a sudden quickness. She seemed to think it unnecessary to prefer any eager disavowal of the charge. You don't care whether I think you flatter me or not. No. You are so secure of your own intentions. I suppose so. What are they, Caroline? Only to ease my mind by expressing for once part of what I think, and then to make you better satisfied with yourself. By assuring me that my kinswoman is my sincere friend. Just so. I am your sincere friend, Robert. And I am. What chance and change shall make me, Lena? Not my enemy, however. The answer was cut short by Sarah and her mistress entering the kitchen together in some commotion. They had been improving the time which Mr. Moore and Miss Halstone had spent in dialogue by a short dispute on the subject of café au lait which Sarah said was the clearest mess she ever saw, and a waste of God's good gifts, as it was the nature of coffee to be boiled in water, and which Mademoiselle affirmed to be un breuvage royal, a thousand times too good for the mean person who objected to it. The former occupants in the kitchen now withdrew into the parlor. Before Hortense followed them thither, Caroline had only time again to question, Not my enemy, Robert, and more, Quaker-like, had replied with another query, Could I be? And then, seating himself at the table, had settled Caroline at his side. Caroline scarcely heard Mademoiselle's explosion of wrath when she rejoined them. The long declamation about the conduit indigné de cette moquante critère sounded in her ears confusedly as the agitated rattling of the china. Robert laughed a little at it, in very subdued sort, and then, politely and calmly entreating his sister to be tranquil, assured her that if it would yield her any satisfaction, she should have her choice of an attendant amongst all the girls in his mill. Only he feared they would scarcely suit her, as they were most of them, he was informed, completely ignorant of household work, and pert and self-willed as Sarah was, she was, perhaps, no worse than the majority of the women of her class. Mademoiselle admitted the truth of this conjecture. According to her, ces paysans anglaises étaient tout insupportables, resolutely refused to imprison in linen or muslin the plentiful tresses of her yellow hair, which it was her wont to fasten up smartly with a comb behind and on Sundays to her curl in front. Shall I try and get you an Antwerp girl? asked Mr. Moore, who, stern in public, was on the whole very kind and private. Merci du cadeau, was the answer. An Antwerp girl would not stay here ten days, sneered at as she would be by all the young coquines in your factory. Then softening, you are very good, dear brother. Excuse my petulance, but truly my domestic trials are severe. What would she not give for some bonne cuisinière en vosois? With the high cap, short petticoat, and decent sabot proper to her class, something better, indeed, than an insolent coquette in a flounced gown and absolutely without cap. For Sarah, it appears, did not partake the opinion of St. Paul that it is a shame for a woman to go with her head uncovered, but holding rather a contrary doctrine. Yet they are probably my destiny, for I recollect that our revered mother experienced similar sufferings, though she had the choice of all the best servants in Antwerp. Domestics are all in countries, a spoiled and unruly set. Mr. Moore had also certain reminiscences about the trials of his revered mother. A good mother she had been to him, and he honored her memory, but he recollected that she kept a hot kitchen oven in Antwerp, just as his faithful sister did here in England. Thus, therefore, he let the subject drop, and when the coffee service was removed, proceeded to console her taunts by fetching her music book and guitar, and having arranged the ribbon of the instrument round her neck, with a quiet fraternal kindness he knew to be all-powerful in soothing her most ruffled moods, he asked her to give him some of their mother's favorite songs. Nothing refines like affection. Family jarring vulgarizes, family union elevates. Hortense, pleased with her brother and grateful to him, looked, as she touched her guitar, almost graceful, almost handsome, 
Her everyday fretful look was gone for a moment and was replaced by a sorrier plan de bon. She sang the songs he asked for with feeling. They reminded her of a parent to whom she had been truly attached. They reminded her of her young days. She observed, too, that Caroline listened with naive interest. This augmented her good humor, and the exclamation at the close of the song, I wish I could sing and play like Hortense, achieved the business and rendered her charming for the evening. It is true a little lecture to Caroline followed on the vanity of wishing and the duty of trying. As Rome, it was suggested, had not been built in a day, so neither had Mademoiselle Gerard Moore's education been completed in a week or by merely wishing to be clever. It was effort that had accomplished that great work. She was ever remarkable for her perseverance, for her industry. Her masters had remarked that it was as delightful as it was uncommon to find so much talent united with so much solidity, and so on. Once on the theme of her own merits, Mademoiselle was fluent. Created at last in blissful self-complacency, she took her knitting and sat down tranquil. Drawn curtains, a clear fire, a softly shining lamp, gave now to the little parlor its best, its evening charm. It is probable that the three there present felt this charm. They all looked happy. "'What shall we do now, Caroline?' asked Mr. Moore, returning to his seat beside his cousin. "'What shall we do, Robert?' repeated she playfully. "'You decide.' "'Not play at chess?' "'No.' "'Nor draughts, nor backgammon?' "'No, no, we both hate silent games that only keep one's hands employed, don't we?' "'I believe we do. Then shall we talk scandal?' "'About whom? Are we sufficiently interested in anybody to take a pleasure in pulling their character to pieces?' "'A question that comes to the point. For my part, unamiable as it sounds, I must say no.' "'And I, too. But it is strange, though we want no third. Fourth, I mean.' She hastily and with contrition glanced at Hortense. "'Living person among us, so selfish we are in our happiness. Though we don't want to think of the present existing world, it would be pleasant to go back to the past, to hear people that have slept for generations in graves that are perhaps no longer graves now, but gardens and fields, speak to us and tell us their thoughts and impart their ideas.' Who shall be the speaker? What language shall he utter? French? Your French forefathers don't speak so sweetly, nor so solemnly, nor so impressively as your English ancestors, Robert. Tonight you shall be entirely English. You shall read an English book. An old English book? Yes, an old English book. One that you like. And I'll choose a part of it that is toned quite in harmony with something in you. It shall waken your nature, fill your mind with music. It shall pass like a skillful hand over your heart and make its strings sound. Your heart is a lyre, Robert, but the lot of your life has not been a minstrel to sweep it, and it is often silent. Let glorious William come near and touch it. You will see how he will draw the English power and melody out of his chords. I must read Shakespeare. You must have his spirit before you. You must hear his voice with your mind's ear. You must take some of his soul into yours. With a view to making me better? Is it to operate like a sermon? It is to stir you, to give you new sensations. It is to make you feel your life strongly, not only your virtues, but your vicious, perverse points. Dieu! Qu'est-ce cried Hortense, who hitherto had been counting stitches in her knitting and had not much attended to what was said, but whose ear these two strong words caught with a tweak. Never mind her sister, let her talk. Now just let her say anything she pleases tonight. She likes to come down hard upon your brother sometimes. It amuses me, so let her alone. Caroline, who, mounted on a chair, had been rummaging the bookcase, returned to the book. Here's Shakespeare, she said, and there's Coriolanus. Now read, and discover by the feelings the reading will give you at once how low and how high you are. Come then, sit near me, and correct me when I mispronounce. I am to be the teacher then, and you my pupil. An si, soyez you. And Shakespeare's our science, since we are going to study? It appears so. And you are not going to be French and skeptical and sneering. You are not going to think it is a sign of wisdom to refuse to admire. I don't know. If you do, Robert, I'll take Shakespeare away, and I'll shrivel up within myself and put on my bonnet and go home. Sit down. Here, I begin. One minute, if you please, brother, interrupted Mademoiselle. When the gentleman of a family reads, the lady should always sew. Caroline, dear child, take your embroidery. You may get three sprigs done tonight. Caroline looked dismayed. I can't see by lamplight. My eyes are tired, and I can't do two things well at once. If I sew, I cannot listen. If I listen, I cannot sew. Fie, donc! Quel enfantillage! began Hortense. Mr. Moore, as usual, suavely interposed. 
Permit her to neglect the embroidery for this evening. I wish her whole attention to be fixed on my accent, and to ensure this, she must follow the reading with her eyes. She must look at the book. He placed it between them, reposed his arm on the back of Caroline's chair, and thus began to read. The very first scene in Coriolanus came with smart relish to his intellectual palate, and still as he read, he warmed. He delivered the haughty speech of Caius Marcius to the starving citizens with unction. He did not say he thought his irrational pride right, but he seemed to feel it so. Caroline looked up at him with a singular smile. There's a vicious point hit already, she said. You sympathize with that proud patrician who does not sympathize with his famished fellow men and insults them. There, go on. He proceeded. The warlike portions did not rouse him much. He said all that was out of date, or should be. The spirit displayed was barbarous, yet the encounter single-handed between Marcius and Tillisophidius he delighted in. As he advanced, he forgot to criticize. It was evident he appreciated the power, the truth of each portion, and stepping out of the narrow line of private prejudices, began to revel in the large picture of human nature, to feel the reality stamped upon the characters who were speaking from that page before him. He did not read the comic scenes well, and Caroline, taking the book out of his hand, read these parts for him. From her he seemed to enjoy them, and indeed she gave them with a spirit no one could have expected of her, with a pithy expression with which she seemed gifted on the spot, and for that brief moment only. It may be remarked, in passing, that the general character of her conversation that evening, whether serious or sprightly, grave or gay, was as of nothing untaught, unstudied, intuitive, fitful, when once gone, no more to be reproduced as it had been than the glancing ray of the meteor, than the tints of the dew-gem, than the color or form of the sunset cloud, than the fleeting and glittering ripple varying the flow of a rivulet. Coriolanus in glory, Coriolanus in disaster, Coriolanus banished, followed like giant shades one after the other. Before the vision of the banished man, more spirits seemed to pause. He stood on the hearth of Ophidius's hall, facing the image of greatness fallen, but greater than ever in that low estate. He saw the grim appearance, the dark face, bearing command in it, the noble vessel with its tackled thorn, with the revenge of Caius Marcius, more perfectly sympathized. He was not scandalized by it, and again Caroline whispered, There, I see another glimpse of brotherhood and error. The march on Rome, the mother's supplication, the long resistance, the final yielding of bad passions to good, whichever must be the case in a nature worthy the epithet of noble, the rage of Ophidius at what he considered his ally's weakness, the death of Coriolanus, the final sorrow of his great enemy. All scenes made of condensed truth and strength came on in succession and carried with them in their deep, fast flow the heart and mind of reader and listener. Now, have you felt Shakespeare? asked Caroline, some ten minutes after her cousin had closed the book. I think so. And have you felt anything in Coriolanus like you? Perhaps I have. Was he not faulty as well as great? Moore nodded. And what was his fault? What made him hated by the citizens? What caused him to be banished by his countrymen? What do you think it was? What do you think it was? I ask again. Whether was it pride, which out of daily fortune ever taints the happy man, whether defect of judgment, to fail in the disposing of those chances which he was lord of, or whether nature, not to be other than one thing, not moving from the cask to the cushion, but commanding peace, even with the same austerity and garb as he controlled the war? Well, answer yourself, Sphinx. It was a spice of all. And you must not be proud to your work, people. You must not neglect chances of soothing them. And you must not be of an inflexible nature, uttering a request as austerely as if it were a command. That is the moral you tack to the play. What puts such notions into your head? A wish for your good, a care for your safety, dear Robert, and a fear, caused by many things which I have heard lately, that you will come to harm. Who tells you these things? I hear my uncle talk about you. He praises your hard spirit, your determined cast of mind, your scorn of low enemies, your resolution not to truckle to the mob, as he says. And would you have me truckle to them? No, not for the world. I never wish you to lower yourself. But somehow I cannot help thinking it unjust to include all poor working people under the general and insulting name of the mob, and continually to think of them and treat them haughtily. You are a little Democrat, Caroline. If your uncle knew, what would he say? I rarely talk to my uncle, as you know, and never about such things. He thinks everything but sewing and cooking above women's comprehension and out of their line. And do you fancy you comprehend the subjects on which you advise me? As far as they concern you, I comprehend them. 
I know it would be better for you to be loved by your work people than to be hated by them, and I am sure that kindness is more likely to win their regard than pride. If you are proud and cold to me and Hortense, should we love you? When you are cold to me, as you are sometimes, can I venture to be affectionate in return? Now, Lena, I've had my lesson both in languages and ethics, with a touch on politics. It is my turn. Hortense tells me you were taken by a little piece of poetry you learned the other day, a piece by poor André Chenier, Le Jeune Captive. Do you remember it still? I think so. Repeat it, then. Take your time and mind your accent, especially let us have no English use. Caroline, beginning in a low, rather tremulous voice, but gaining courage as she proceeded, repeated the sweet verses of Chenier. The last three stanzas she rehearsed well. Mon beau voyage encore est si loin de sa fin. Je pars et des hommes qui boiront la chemine. Je passe le premier à peine. Au banquet de la vie, à peine commencé. Un instant seulement me lèvres en procès. La cour et mes mains encore pleines. Je ne suis quoi printemps. Je veux voir la mousson. Comme le soleil de saison en saison. Je veux achever mon année. Brillant sur ma tige et l'honneur du jardin. Je ne veux lire encore que les fous du matin. Je veux achever ma journée. Moore listened at first with his eyes cast down, but soon he furtively raised them. Leaning back in his chair, he would watch Caroline without her perceiving where his gaze was fixed. Her cheek had a color, her eyes a light, her countenance an expression this evening which would have made even plain features striking, but there was not the grievous defect of plainness to pardon in her case. The sunshine was not shed on rough barrenness, it fell on soft bloom. Each liniment was turned with grace, the whole aspect was pleasing. At the present moment, animated, interested, touched, she might be called beautiful. Such a face was calculated to awaken not only the calm sentiment of esteem, the distant one of admiration, but some feeling more tender, genial, intimate. Friendship, perhaps, affection, interest. When she had finished, she turned to Moore and met his eye. Is that pretty well repeated? she inquired, smiling like any happy, docile child. I really don't know. Why don't you know? Have you not listened? Yes, and looked. You were fond of poetry, Lena. When I meet with real poetry, I cannot rest till I have learned it by heart, and so made it partly mine. Mr. Moore now sat silent for several minutes. It struck nine o'clock. Sarah entered and said that Mr. Halstone's servant was come for Miss Caroline. Then the evening is gone already, she observed, and it will be long, I suppose, before I pass another here. Hortense had been for some time nodding over her knitting. Falling into a doze now, she made no response to the remark. You would have no objection to come here oftener of an evening, inquired Robert, as he took her folded mantle from the side table, where it still lay, and carefully wrapped it round her. I like to come here, but I have no desire to be intrusive. I am not hinting to be asked. You must understand that. Oh, I understand thee, child. You sometimes lecture me for wishing to be rich, Lena, but if I were rich, you should live here always. At any rate, you should live with me wherever my habitation might be. That would be pleasant, and if you were poor, ever so poor, it would still be pleasant. Good night, Robert. I promised to walk with you up to the rectory. I know you did, but I thought you had forgotten, and I hardly knew how to remind you, though I wished to do it. But would you like to go? It is a cold night, and as Fanny has come, there is no necessity. Here's your muff. Don't wake Hortense. Come. The half-mile to the rectory was soon traversed. They parted in the garden without kiss, scarcely with a pressure of hands. Yet Robert sent his cousin in, excited and joyously troubled. He had been singularly kind to her that day, not in phrase, compliment, profession, but in manner, in look, and in soft and friendly tones. For himself, he came home grave, almost morose. As he stood leaning on his own yard gate, musing in the watery moonlight all alone, the hushed, dark mill before him, the hill environed hollow round, he exclaimed abruptly, This won't do! There's weakness! There's downright ruin in all this! However, he added, dropping his voice, the frenzy is quite temporary. I know it very well. I've had it before. It will be gone tomorrow. All right, time for our little intermission where I remind you guys how I'm able to make this podcast a reality. Chapter 7 The Curates at Tea. Caroline Hellstone was just 18 years old, and at 18, the true narrative of life is yet to be commenced. 
Before that time, we sit listening to a tale, a marvelous fiction, delighted sometimes and sad sometimes, almost always unreal. Before that time, our world is heroic, its inhabitants half-divine or semi-demon, its scenes are dream scenes, darker woods and stranger hills, brighter skies, more dangerous waters, sweeter flowers, more tempting fruits, wider plains, drearier deserts, sunnier fields than are found in nature, overspread our enchanted globe. What a moon we gaze on before that time. How the trembling of our hearts at her aspect bears witness to its unutterable beauty. As to our sun, it is a burning heaven, the world of gods. At that time, at eighteen, drawing near the confines of elusive, void dreams, Elfland lies behind us. The shores of reality rise in front. These shores are yet distant. They look so blue, soft, gentle, we long to reach them. In sunshine, we see a greenness beneath the azure, as of spring meadows. We catch glimpses of silver lines, and imagine the roll of living waters. Could we but reach this land, we think to hunger and thirst no more, whereas many a wilderness, and often the flood of death, or some stream of sorrow as cold and almost as black as death, is to be crossed ere true bliss can be tasted. Every joy that life gives must be earned ere it is secured, and how hardly earned, those only know who have wrestled for great prizes. The heart's blood must gem with red beads over the brow of the combatant, before the wreath of victory rustles over it. At eighteen we are not aware of this. Hope, when she smiles on us and promises happiness tomorrow, is implicitly believed. Love, when he comes wandering like a lost angel to our door, is at once admitted, welcomed, embraced. His quiver is not seen. If his arrows penetrate, their wound is like a thrill of new life. There is no fears of poison, none of the barb which no leech's hand can extract. That perilous passion, an agony ever in some of its phases, with many an agony throughout, is believed to be an unqualified good. In short, at eighteen, the school of experience is to be entered, and her humbling, crushing, grinding, but yet purifying and invigorating lessons are yet to be learned. Alas, experience! No other mentor is so wasted and frozen a face as yours. None wears a robe so black, none bears a rod so heavy. None with hand so inexorable draws the novice so sternly to his task, and forces him with authority so resistless to its acquirement. It is by your instructions alone that man or woman can ever find a safe track through life's wilds. Without it, how they stumble, how they stray. On what forbidden grounds do they intrude? Down what dread declivities are they hurled? Caroline, having been conveyed home by Robert, had no wish to pass what remained of the evening with her uncle. The room in which he sat was very sacred ground to her. She seldom intruded on it. And tonight she kept aloof till the bell rang for prayers. Part of the evening church service was the form of worship observed in Mr. Helstone's household. He read it in his usual nasal voice, clear, loud, and monotonous. The right over, his niece, according to her wont, stepped up to him. Good night, uncle. Hey, you've been guiding abroad all day, visiting, dining out, and whatnot. Only at the cottage. And have you learned your lessons? Yes. And made a shirt? Only part of one. Well, that will do. Stick to the needle. Learn shirt-making and gown-making and pie-crust-making, and you'll be a clever woman some day. Go to bed now. I'm busy with a pamphlet here. Presently, the niece was enclosed in her small bedroom. The door bolted, her white dressing gown assumed, her long hair loosened and falling thick, soft, and wavy to her waist. And, as resting from the task of combing it out, she leaned her cheek on her hand and fixed her eyes on the carpet. Before her rose and clothes around her drew, the visions we see at eighteen years. Her thoughts were speaking with her, speaking pleasantly, as it seemed, for she smiled as she listened. She looked pretty meditating thus, but a brighter thing than she was in that apartment, the spirit of youthful hope. According to this flattering prophet, she was to know disappointment, to feel chill no more. She had entered on the dawn of a summer day, no false dawn, but the true spring of morning, and her sun would quickly rise. Impossible for her now to suspect that she was the sport of delusion. Her expectations seemed warranted. The foundation on which they rested appeared solid. When people love, the next step is they marry, was her argument. Now I love Robert, and I feel sure that Robert loves me. I have thought so many a time before. Today I felt it. When I looked up at him after repeating Chenier's poem, his eyes, what handsome eyes he has, sent the truth through my heart. Sometimes I am afraid to speak to him, lest I should be too frank, lest I should seem forward, for I have more than once regretted bitterly overflowing superfluous words, and feared I had said more than he expected me to say, and that he would disapprove what he might deem my indiscretion. 
Now, tonight, I could have ventured to express any thought, he was so indulgent. How kind he was as we walked up the lane. He does not flatter or say foolish things. His love-making, friendship, I mean, of course, I don't yet account him my lover, but I hope he will be so some day, is not like what we read of in books. It is far better, original, quiet, manly, sincere. I do like him. I would be an excellent wife to him if he did marry me. I would tell him of his faults, for he has a few faults, but I would study his comfort and cherish him, and do my best to make him happy. Now, I am sure he will not be cold tomorrow. I feel almost certain that tomorrow evening he will either come here or ask me to go there. She recommenced combing her hair, long as a mermaid's. Turning her head as she arranged it, she saw her own face and form in the glass. Such reflections are soberizing to plain people. Their own eyes are not enchanted with the image. They are confident, then, that the eyes of others can see in it no fascination. But the fair must naturally draw other conclusions. The picture is charming and must charm. Caroline saw a shape, a head, that daguerreotyped in that attitude and with that expression would have been lovely. She could not choose but derive from the spectacle confirmation to her hopes. It was then in undiminished gladness she sought her couch. And in undiminished gladness she rose the next day. As she entered her uncle's breakfast room and with soft cheerfulness wished him good morning, even that little man of bronze himself thought, for an instant, his niece was growing a fine girl. Generally, she was quiet and timid with him, very docile, but not communicative. This morning, however, she found many things to say. Slight topics alone might be discussed between them, for with a woman, a girl, Mr. Halstone would touch on no other. She had taken an early walk in the garden, and she told him what flowers were beginning to spring there. She inquired when the gardener was to come and trim the borders. She informed him that certain starlings were beginning to build their nests in the church tower. Briarfield Church was close to Briarfield Rectory. She wondered the tolling of the bells in the belfry did not scare them. Mr. Hellstone opined that they were like other fools who had just paired, insensible to inconvenience just for the moment. Caroline made perhaps a little too courageous by her temporary good spirits, here hazarded a remark of a kind she had never before ventured to make on observations dropped by a revered relative. Uncle, she said, whenever you speak of marriage, you speak of it scornfully. Do you think people shouldn't marry? It is decidedly the wisest plan to remain single, especially for women. Are all marriages unhappy? Millions of marriages are unhappy. If everybody confessed the truth, perhaps all are, more or less so. You were always vexed when you were asked to come and marry a couple. Why? Because one does not like to act as accessory to the commission of a piece of pure folly. Mr. Halstone spoke so readily, he seemed rather glad of the opportunity to give his niece a piece of his mind on this point. Emboldened by the impunity which had hitherto attended her questions, she went a little further. But why, she said, should it be pure folly? If two people like each other, why shouldn't they consent to live together? They tire of each other. They tire of each other in a month. A yoke fellow is not a companion. He or she is a fellow sufferer. It was by no means naive simplicity which inspired Caroline's next remark. It was a sense of antipathy to such opinions, and of displeasure at him who held them. One would think you had never been married, uncle. One would think you were an old bachelor. Practically, I am so. But you have been married. Why were you so inconsistent as to marry? Every man is mad once or twice in his life. So you tired of my aunt, and my aunt of you, and you were miserable together. Mr. Halstone pushed out his cynical lip, wrinkled his brown forehead, and gave an inarticulate grunt. Did she not suit you? Was she not good-tempered? Did you not get used to her? Were you not sorry when she died? Caroline, said Mr. Halstone, bringing his hand slowly down to within an inch or two of the table, and then smiting it suddenly on the mahogany. Understand this. It is vulgar and puerile to confound generals with particulars. In every case there is the rule, and there are the exceptions. Your questions are stupid and babyish. Ring the bell if you have done breakfast. The breakfast was taken away, and that meal over, it was the general custom of uncle and niece to separate, and not to meet again until dinner. But today the niece, instead of quitting the room, went to the window seat and sat down there. Mr. Halstone looked round uneasily once or twice, as if he wished her away, but she was gazing from the window and did not seem to mind him, so he continued the perusal of his morning paper, a particularly interesting one it chanced to be, as new movements had just taken place in the peninsula, and certain columns of the journal were rich in long dispatches from General Lord Wellington. He little knew, meantime, what thoughts were busy in his niece's mind. 
Thoughts the conversation of the past half hour had revived but not generated. Tumultuous were they now, as disturbed bees in a hive, but it was years since they had first made their cells in her brain. She was reviewing his character, his disposition, repeating the sentiments on marriage. Many a time had she reviewed them before, and sounded the gulf between her own mind and his. And then, on the other side of the wide and deep chasm, she had seen, and she now saw, another figure standing beside her uncle's. A strange shape, dim, sinister, scarcely earthly. The half-remembered image of her own father, James Hellstone, Matthewson Hellstone's brother. Rumors had reached her ear of what her father's character was. Old servants had dropped hints. She, too, knew that he was not a good man, and that he was never kind to her. She recollected, a dark recollection it was, some weeks that she had spent with him in a great town somewhere, when she had had no maid to dress her or take care of her, when she had been shut up day and night in a high garret room without a carpet, with a bare, uncurtained bed, and scarcely any other furniture, when he went out early every morning, and often forgot to return and give her her dinner during the day, and at night, when he came back, was like a madman, furious, terrible, or still more painful, like an idiot, imbecile, senseless. She knew she had fallen ill in this place, and that one night when she was very sick he had come roving into the room and said he would kill her, for she was a burden to him. Her screams had brought aid, and from the moment she was then rescued from him she had never seen him, except as a dead man in his coffin. That was her father. Also she had a mother, though Mr. Hellstone never spoke to her of that mother, though she could not remember having seen her, but that she was alive she knew. This mother was then the drunkard's wife. What had their marriage been? Caroline, turning from the lattice whence she had been watching the starlings, though without seeing them, in a low voice and with a sad, bitter tone, thus broke the silence of the room. You term marriage miserable, I suppose, from what you saw of my father and mother's. If my mother suffered what I suffered when I was with Pa, she must have had a dreadful life. Mr. Hellstone, thus addressed, wheeled about in his chair and looked over his spectacles at his niece. He was taken aback. Her father and mother? What had put it into her head to mention her father and mother, of whom he had never, during the twelve years she had lived with him, spoken to her? That the thoughts were self-matured, that she had any recollections or speculations about her parents, he could not fancy. Your father and mother? Who has been talking to you about them? Nobody, but I remember something of what papa was, and I pity mamma. Where is she? This, where is she, had been on Caroline's lips hundreds of times before, but till now she had never uttered it. I hardly know, returned Mr. Hellstone. I was little acquainted with her. I have not heard from her for years, but wherever she is, she thinks nothing of you. She never inquires about you. I have reason to believe she does not wish to see you. Come, it is school time. You go to your cousin at ten, don't you? The clock is struck. Perhaps Caroline would have said more, but Fanny, coming in, informed her master that the church wardens wanted to speak to him in the vestry. He hastened to join them, and his niece presently set out for the cottage. The road from the rectory to Hollow's Mill inclined downwards. She ran, therefore, almost all the way. Exercise, the fresh air, the thought of seeing Robert, at least of being on his premises, in his vicinage, revived her somewhat depressed spirits quickly. Arriving in sight of the White House, and within hearing of the thundering mill and its rushing water course, the first thing she saw was more at his garden gate. There he stood in his belted holland blouse, a light cap covering his head, which undress costume suited him. He was looking down the lane, not in the direction of his cousin's approach. She stopped, withdrawing a little behind a willow, and studied his appearance. He has not his peer, she thought. He is as handsome as he is intelligent. What a keen eye he has. What clearly cut, spirited features, thin and serious but graceful. I do like his face. I do like his aspect. I do like him so much. Better than any of those shuffling curates, for instance. Better than anybody. Bonnie Robert. She sought Bonnie Robert's presence speedily. For his part, when she challenged his sight, I believe he would have passed from before her eyes like a phantom if he could. But being a tall fact and no fiction, he was obliged to stand the greeting. He made it brief. It was cousin-like, brother-like, friend-like, anything but lover-like. The nameless charm of last night had left his manner. He was no longer the same man, or at any rate the same heart did not beat in his breast. Rude disappointment, sharp cross. At first the eager girl would not believe in the change, though she felt and saw it. It was difficult to withdraw her hand from his. It was difficult to turn her eyes from his eyes, till his looks had expressed something more and fonder than that cool welcome. A lover masculine so disappointed can speak and urge explanation. A lover feminine can say nothing. If she did, the result would be shame and anguish, inward remorse for self-treachery. 
Nature would brand such demonstration as a rebellion against her instincts, till he had bestowed at least something like a kind pressure, and would vindictively repay it afterwards by the thunderbolt of self-contempt smiting suddenly in secret. Take the matter as you find it. Ask no questions, utter no remonstrances. It is your best wisdom. You expected bread and you have got a stone. Break your teeth on it and don't shriek because the nerves are martyrized. Do not doubt that your mental stomach, if you have such a thing, is strong as an ostrich's. The stone will digest. You held out your hand for an egg and fate put into it a scorpion. Show no consternation. Close your fingers firmly upon the gift. Let it sting through your palm. Never mind. In time, after your hand and arm have swelled and quivered long with torture, the squeezed scorpion will die and you will have learned the great lesson how to endure without a sob. For the whole remnant of your life, if you survive the test, some, it is said, die under it, you will be stronger, wiser, less sensitive. This you are not aware of, perhaps, at the time, and so cannot borrow courage of that hope. Nature, however, as has been intimated, is an excellent friend in such cases, sealing the lips, interdicting utterance, commanding a placid dissimulation, a dissimulation often wearing an easy and gay mien at first, settling down to sorrow and paleness in time, then passing away and leaving a convenient stoicism, not the less fortifying because it is half bitter. Half bitter? Is that wrong? No, it should be bitter. Bitterness is strength. It is a tonic. Sweet, mild force following acute suffering you find nowhere. To talk of it is a delusion. There may be apathetic exhaustion after the rack. If energy remains, it will be rather a dangerous energy, deadly when confronted with injustice. Written I know not in what generation nor by what hand. Mary had been ill-used, probably in being made to believe that truth which was falsehood. She is not complaining, but she is sitting alone in the snowstorm, and you hear her thoughts. They are not the thoughts of a model heroine under her circumstances, but they are those of a deeply feeling, strongly resentful peasant girl. Anguish has driven her from the ingle nook of home to the white-shrouded and icy hills. Crouched under the cold drift, she recalls every image of horror. The yellow-wimmed ask, the hairy adder, who has read the ballad of poor Mary Lee, that old Scotch ballad, the old moon-bowing tyke, the gay stadine, the sour bolster, the milk on the toad's back. She hates these, but war she hates Robin O'Ree. Oh, uns I lived happily by yon bunny burn. The world was in love with me, but now I'm on neath the cold drift and morn, and curse black Robin O'Ree. Then what are awa, though bitter biting blast, and south through the scrunchy tree, and swore me up in the snow for fast, and ne'er let the sun me see. Oh, never melt away, though wreath the snow, that say kind engraving me, but hide me fra the scorn and guffaw of villains like Robin O'Ree. But what has been said in the last page or two is not germane to Caroline Hellstone's feelings, or to the state of things between her and Robert Moore. Robert had done her no wrong. He had told her no lie. It was she that was to blame, if anyone was. What bitterness her mind distilled should and would be poured on her own head. She had loved without being asked to love. A natural, sometimes an inevitable chance, but big with misery. Robert, indeed, had sometimes seemed to be fond of her. But why? Because she had made herself so pleasing to him. He could not, in spite of all his efforts, help testifying a state of feeling his judgment did not approve nor his will sanction. He was about to withdraw decidedly from intimate communication with her, because he did not choose to have his affections inextricably entangled, nor to be drawn, despite his reason, into a marriage he believed imprudent. Now, what was she to do? To give way to her feelings, or to vanquish them? To pursue him, or to turn upon herself? If she is weak, she will try the first expedient, will lose his esteem and win his aversion. If she has sense, she will be her own governor, and resolve to subdue and bring under guidance the disturbed realm of her emotions. She will determine to look on life steadily as it is to begin to learn its severe truths seriously, and to study its naughty problems closely, conscientiously. It appeared she had little sense, for she quitted Robert quickly, without complaint or question, without the alteration of a muscle or the shedding of a tear, but took herself to her studies under Hortense as usual, and at dinner time went home without lingering. When she had dined and found herself in the rectory drawing-room alone, having left her uncle over his temperate glass of port wine, the difficulty that occurred to her and embarrassed her was, how am I to get through this day? Last night she had hoped it would be spent as yesterday was, that the evening would be again passed with happiness and Robert. She learned her mistake this morning, and yet she could not settle down, convinced that no change would occur to recall her to Hollow's cottage, or to bring more again into her society. He had walked up after tea more than once to pass an hour with her uncle, 
The doorbell had rung, his voice had been heard in the passage just at twilight, when she little expected such a pleasure, and this had happened twice after he had treated her with peculiar reserve, and though he rarely talked to her in her uncle's presence, he had looked at her relentingly as he sat opposite her work table during his stay. The few words he had spoken to her were comforting. His manner on bidding her good night was genial. Now, he might come this evening, said False Hope. She almost knew it was False Hope, which breathed the whisper, and yet she listened. She tried to read. Her thoughts wandered. She tried to sew. Every stitch she put in it was an ennui. The occupation was insufferably tedious. She opened her desk and attempted to write a French composition. She wrote nothing but mistakes. Fanny was admitting a visitor, a gentleman, a tall man, just the height of Robert. For one second she thought it was Robert. For one second she exulted, but the voice asking for Mr. Hellstone undeceived her. That voice was an Irish voice, consequently not Moore's, but the curate's, Malone's. He was ushered into the dining room, where, doubtless, he speedily helped his rector to empty the decanters. It was a fact to be noted that at whatever house in Briarfield, Winbury, or Nunnally one curate dropped into a meal, dinner or tea, as the case might be, another presently followed, often two more. Not that they gave each other the rendezvous, but they were usually all on the run at the same time, and when Don, for instance, sought Malone at his lodgings and found him not, he inquired whether he had posted, and having learned of the landlady his destination, hastened with all speed after him. The same causes operated in the same way with Sweetian. Thus it chanced on that afternoon that Caroline's ears were three times tortured with the ringing of the bell and the advent of undesired guests. For Don followed Malone, and Sweeting followed Don, and more wine was ordered up from the cellar into the dining room. For though old Hellstone chid the inferior priesthood when he found them carousing, as he called it, in their own tents, suddenly the doorbell sharply rang. Her heart leaped. She sprang to the drawing-room door, opened it softly, peeped through the aperture. Yet at his hierarchical table he ever liked to treat them to a glass of his best. And through the closed doors Caroline heard their boyish laughter and the vacant cackle of their voices. Her fear was lest they should stay to tea, for she had no pleasure in making tea for that particular trio. What distinctions people drew. These three were men, young men, educated men like Moore. Yet for her, how great the difference. Their society was a bore, his a delight. Not only was she destined to be favored with their clerical company, but fortune was at this moment bringing her four other guests, lady guests, all packed in a pony phaeton, now rolling somewhat heavily along the road from Winbury. An elderly lady and three of her buxom daughters were coming to see her, in a friendly way, as the custom of that neighborhood was. Yes, a fourth time the bell clanged. Fanny brought the present announcement to the drawing-room. Mrs. Sykes and the three Mrs. Sykes. When Caroline was going to receive company, her habit was to wring her hands very nervously, to flush a little, and come forward hurriedly yet hesitatingly, wishing herself meantime at Jericho. She was, at such crises, sadly deficient in finished manner, though she had once been at school a year. Accordingly, on this occasion, her small white hands sadly maltreated each other while she stood up, waiting the entrance of Mrs. Sykes. In stalked that lady, a tall, bilious gentlewoman, who made an ample and not altogether insincere profession of piety, and was greatly given to hospitality towards the clergy. In sailed her three daughters, a showy trio, being all three well-grown and more or less handsome. In English country ladies, there is this point to be remarked. Whether young or old, pretty or plain, dull or sprightly, they all, or almost all, have a certain expression stamped on their features which seems to say, I know, I do not boast of it, but I know that I am the standard of what is proper. Let everyone, therefore, whom I approach, or who approaches me, keep a sharper lookout, for wherein they differ from me, be the same in dress, manner, opinion, principle, or practice, therein they are wrong. Mrs. and Mrs. Sykes, far from being exceptions to this observation, were pointed illustrations of its truth. Miss Mary, a well-looked, well-meant, and on the whole, well-dispositioned girl, wore her complacency with some state, though without harshness. Miss Harriet, a beauty, carried it more overbearingly. She looked high and cold. Miss Hannah, who was conceited, dashing, pushing, flourished hers consciously and openly. The mother invinced it with the gravity proper to her age and religious fame. The reception was got through somehow. Caroline was glad to see them, an unmitigated fib. Hoped they were well. Hoped Mrs. Sykes' cough was better. Mrs. Sykes had had a cough for the last twenty years. Hoped the Mrs. Sykes had left their sisters at home well, to which inquiry the Mrs. Sykes, sitting on three chairs opposite the music stool, whereon Caroline had undesignedly come to anchor, 
after waverings from some seconds between it and a large armchair, into which she at length recollected she ought to induct Mrs. Sykes, and indeed that lady saved her the trouble by depositing herself therein. The Mrs. Sykes replied to Caroline by one simultaneous bow, very majestic and mighty awful. A pause followed. This bow was of a character to ensure silence for the next five minutes, and it did. Mrs. Sykes then inquired after Mr. Hellstone, and whether he had had any return of rheumatism, and whether preaching twice on a Sunday fatigued him, and if he was capable of taking a full service now, and on being assured that he was, she and all her daughters, combining in chorus, expressed their opinion that he was a wonderful man of his years. Pause second. Miss Mary, getting up the steam in her turn, asked whether Caroline had attended the Bible Society meeting which had been held at Nunnally last Thursday night. The negative answer which truth compelled Caroline to utter, for last Thursday evening she had been sitting at home reading a novel which Robert had lent her, elicited a simultaneous expression of surprise from the lips of the four ladies. We were all there, said Miss Mary, Mamma and all of us. We even persuaded Papa to go. Hannah would insist upon it. But he fell asleep while Mr. Langvelig, the German Moravian minister, was speaking. I felt quite ashamed he nodded so. And there was Dr. Broadbent, cried Hannah. Such a beautiful speaker. You couldn't expect it of him, for he is almost a vulgar-looking man. But such a dear man, interrupted Mary. And such a good man, such a useful man, added her mother. Only like a butcher in appearance, interposed the fair, proud Harriet. I couldn't bear to look at him. I listened with my eyes shut. Miss Hellstone felt her ignorance and incompetency. Not having seen Dr. Broadbent, she could not give her opinion. Pause third came on. During its continuance, Caroline was feeling at her heart's core what a dreaming fool she was, what an unpractical life she led, how little fitness there was in her for ordinary intercourse with the ordinary world. She was feeling how exclusively she had attached herself to the white cottage in the hollow, how in the existence of one inmate of that cottage she had penned all her universe. She was sensible that this would not do, and that some day she would be forced to make an alteration. It could not be said that she exactly wished to resemble the ladies before her, but she wished to become superior to her present self, so as to feel less scared by their dignity. We are much obliged to you, but... When in came Fanny once more. The gentleman will stay the evening, ma'am, was the message she brought from Mr. Hellstone. What gentleman have you? Now inquired Mrs. Sykes. The names were specified. She and her daughters interchanged glances. The curates were not to them what they were to Caroline. Mr. Sweeting was quite a favorite with them. The sole means she found of reviving the flagging discourse was by asking them if they would all stay to tea, and a cruel struggle it cost her to perform this piece of civility. Mrs. Sykes had begun, even Mr. Malone rather so, because he was a clergyman. Really, since you have company already, I think we shall stay, remarked Mrs. Sykes. We shall be a quite a pleasant little party. I always like to meet the clergy. And now Caroline had to usher them upstairs, to help them to unshawl, smooth their hair, and make themselves smart, to reconduct them to the drawing room, to distribute amongst them books of engravings or odd things purchased from the Jew basket. She was obliged to be a purchaser, though she was a slack contributor, and if she had possessed plenty of money, she would rather, when it was brought to the rectory, an awful incubus, have purchased the whole stock than contributed a single pincushion. It ought to be explained in passing, for the benefit of those who are not au fait to the mysteries of the Jew basket and missionary basket, that these mobles are willow repositories, of the capacity of a good-sized family clothes basket, dedicated to the purpose of conveying from house to house a monster collection of pincushions, needlebooks, card racks, work bags, articles of inventware, etc., 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 made by the willing or reluctant hands of the Christian ladies of a parish, and sold perforce to the heathenish gentlemen thereof, at prices unblushingly exorbitant. The proceeds of such compulsory sales are applied to the conversion of the Jews, the seeking out of the ten missing tribes, or to the regeneration of the interested colored population of the globe. Each lady contributor takes it in her turn to keep the basket a month, to sew for it, and to foist its contents on a shrinking male public. An exciting time it is when that turn comes round. Some active-minded women, with a good trading spirit, like it, and enjoy exceedingly the fun of making hard-handed worsted spinners cash up to the tune of four or five hundred percent above the cost price, for articles quite useless to them. Other feebler souls object to it, and would rather see the price of darkness himself at their door any morning than that phantom basket. Brought with Mrs. Rouse's compliments, and please, ma'am, she says it's your turn now. 
Miss Hellstone's duties of hostess performed, more anxiously than cheerily, she betook herself to the kitchen to hold a brief privy council with Fanny and Eliza about the tea. What a lot on em, cried Eliza, who was cook. And I put off the bacon today because I thought there would be bread plenty to fit while morning. We shall never have it now. Are there any tea cakes? asked the young mistress. Only three in a loaf. I wish these fine folk would stay at home till they're asked, and I, and I want to finish trimming my hat. Bonnet, she meant. Then, suggested Caroline, to whom the importance of the emergency gave a certain energy, Fanny must run down to Briarfield and buy some muffins and crumpets and some biscuits. And don't be cross, Eliza. We can't help it now. And which tea things are we to have? Oh, the best, I suppose. I'll get out the silver service. And she ran upstairs to the plate closet and presently brought down teapot, creamer, and sugar basin. And, Mom, we have the iron. Yes, and now get it ready as quickly as you can, for the sooner we have tea over, the sooner they will go. At least, I hope so. Hi-ho, I wish they were gone. She sighed as she returned to the drawing room. Still, she thought, as she paused at the door ere opening it. If Robert would but come even now, how bright all would be. How comparatively easy the task of amusing these people if he were present. There would be an interest in hearing him talk, though he never says much in company, and in talking in his presence. There can be no interest in hearing any of them, or in speaking to them. How they will gabble when the curates come in, and how wary I shall grow with listening to them. But I suppose I am a selfish fool. These are very respectable gentlefolks. I ought, no doubt, to be proud of their countenance. I didn't say they are not as good as I am, far from it, but they are different from me. She went in. Yorkshire people in those days took their tea round the table, sitting well into it, with their knees duly introduced under the mahogany. It was essential to have a multitude of plates of bread and butter, varied in sorts and plentiful in quantity. It was thought proper, too, that on the center plate should stand a glass dish of marmalade. Among the viands was expected to be found a small assortment of cheesecakes and tarts. If there was also a plate of thin slices of pink ham garnished with green parsley, so much the better. Eliza, the rector's cook, fortunately knew her business as provider. She had been put out of humor a little at first, when the invaders came so unexpectedly in such strength, but it appeared that she regained her cheerfulness with action, for in due time the tea was spread forth in handsome style, and neither ham, tarts, nor marmalade were wanting among its accompaniments. The curates, summoned to this bounteous repast, entered joyous, but at once, on seeing the ladies, of whose presence they had not been forewarned, they came to a stand in the doorway. Malone headed the party. He stopped short and fell back, almost capsizing Dawn, who was behind him. Dawn, staggering three paces in retreat, sent little Sweden into the arms of old Hellstone, who brought up the rear. There was some expostulation, some tittering. Malone was desired to mind what he was about and urged to push forward, which at last he did, though coloring to the top of his peaked forehead a bluish purple. Hellstone, advancing, set the shy curates aside, welcomed all his fair guests, shook hands and passed a jest with each, and seated himself snugly between the lovely Harriet and the dashing Hannah. Miss Mary he requested to move to the seat opposite him, that he might see her if he couldn't be near her. Perfectly easy and gallant in his way were his manners always to young ladies, and most popular was he amongst them. Yet at heart he neither respected nor liked the sex, and such of them as circumstances brought into intimate relation with him had ever feared rather than loved him. The curates were left to shift for themselves. Sweeting, who was the least embarrassed of the three, took refuge beside Mrs. Sykes, who, he knew, was almost as fond of him as if he had been her son. Don, after making his general bow with a grace all his own, and saying in a high, pragmatical voice, "'How do you do, Miss Hellstone?' dropped into a seat at Caroline's elbow to her unmitigated annoyance, for she had a peculiar antipathy to Don, on account of his stultified and immovable self-conceit and his incurable narrowness of mind. Malone, grinning most unmeaningly, inducted himself into the corresponding seat on the other side. She was thus blessed in a pair of supporters, neither of whom she knew would be of any mortal use, whether for keeping up the conversation, handing cups, circulating the muffins, or even lifting the plate from the slot basin. Little Sweeting, small and boyish as he was, would have been worth twenty of them. Malone, though a ceaseless talker when there were only men present, was usually tongue-tied in the presence of ladies. Three phrases, however, he had ready cut and dried, which he never failed to produce. Firstly, have you had a walk today, Miss Hellstone? Secondly, have you seen your cousin Moore lately? Thirdly, does your class at the Sunday school keep up its number? 
These three questions being put and responded to, between Caroline Malone reigned silence. With Don, it was otherwise. He was troublesome, exasperating. He had a stock of small talk on hand, at once the most trait and perverse that can well be imagined. Abuse of the people of Briarfield, of the natives of Yorkshire generally, complaints of the want of high society, of the backward state of civilization in these districts, murmurings against the disrespectful conduct of the lower orders in the north towards their betters, silly ridicule of the manner of living in these parts, the want of style, the absence of elegance, as if he, Don, had been accustomed to very great doings indeed, an insinuation which his somewhat underbred manner and aspect failed to bear out. These strictures, he seemed to think, must raise him in the estimation of Miss Hellstone, or of any other lady who heard him, whereas with her, at least, they brought him to a level below contempt, though sometimes, indeed, they incensed her, for a Yorkshire girl herself, she hated to hear Yorkshire abused by such a pitiful pratter, and when wrought up to a certain pitch, she would turn and say something of which neither the matter nor the manner recommended her to Mr. Don's goodwill. She would tell him it was no proof of refinement to be ever scolding others for vulgarity, and no sign of a good pastor to be eternally censuring his flock. She would ask him what he had entered the church for, since he complained there were only cottages to visit and poor people to preach to, whether he had been ordained to the ministry merely to wear soft clothing and sit in king's houses. These questions were considered by all the curates as, to the last degree, audacious and impious. Tea was a long time in progress. All the guests gabbled as their hostess had expected they would. Mr. Hellstone, being in excellent spirits, when indeed was he ever otherwise in society, attractive female society, it being only with the one lady of his own family that he maintained a groom taciturnity, kept up a brilliant flow of easy prattle with his right-hand and left-hand neighbors, and even with his V.I.V. Miss Mary, though, as Mary was the most sensible, the least coquettish of the three, to her the elderly widower was the least attentive. At heart, he could not abide sense in women. He liked to see them as silly, as light-headed, as vain, as open to ridicule as possible, because they were then, in reality, what he held them to be, and wished them to be, inferior, toys to play with, to amuse the vacant hour, and to be thrown away. Hannah was his favorite. Harriet, though beautiful, egotistical, and self-satisfied, was not quite weak enough for him. She had some genuine self-respect amidst much false pride, and if she did not talk like an oracle, neither would she babble like one crazy. She would not permit herself to be treated quite as a doll, a child, a plaything. She expected to be bent to like a queen. Hannah, on the contrary, demanded no respect, only flattery. If her admirers only told her that she was an angel, she would let them treat her like an idiot. So very credulous and frivolous was she, so very silly did she become when besieged with attention, flattered and admired to the proper degree, that there were moments when Hellstone actually felt tempted to commit matrimony a second time, and to try the experiment of taking her for a second helpmeet. But fortunately, the salutary recollection of the ennui of his first marriage, the impression still left on him of the weight of the millstone he had once worn round his neck, the fixity of his feelings respecting the insufferable evils of conjugal existence, operated as a check to his tenderness, suppressed the sigh heaving his old iron lungs, and restrained him from whispering to Hannah proposals it would have been high fun and great satisfaction to her to hear. It is probable she would have married him if he had asked her, could have presented no obstacles, and as he was a rector, held an excellent living, occupied a good house, and was supposed even to have private property, though in that the world was mistaken, every penny of the five thousand pounds inherited by him from his father had been devoted to the building and endowing of a new church at his native village in Lancashire, for he could show a lordly munificence when he pleased. Her parents would have quite approved of the match. To them, his fifty-five years, his bend leather heart, and if the end was to his liking, never hesitated about making a grand sacrifice to attain it. Her parents, I say, would have delivered Hannah over to his loving kindness and his tender mercies without one scruple, and the second Mrs. Hellstone, inverting the natural order of insect existence, would have fluttered through the honeymoon a bright, admired butterfly, and crawled the rest of her days a sordid, trampled worm. Seated between Mrs. Sykes and Miss Mary, both of whom were very kind to him, and having a dish of tarts before him, and marmalade and crumpet upon his plate, looked and felt more content than any monarch. He was fond of all the Mrs. Sykes. They were all fond of him. He thought them magnificent girls, quite proper to mate with one of his inches. If he had a cause of regret at this blissful moment, it was that Miss Dora happened to be absent, Dora being the one whom he secretly hoped one day to call Mrs. David Sweeting, with whom he dreamt of taking stately walks, leading her like an empress through the village of Nunnally, and an empress she would have been, if size could make an empress. She was vast, ponderous, 
Seen from behind, she had the air of a very stout lady of forty, but withal she possessed a good face and no unkindly character. The meal at last drew to a close. It would have been over long ago if Mr. Don had not persisted in sitting with his cup half full of cold tea before him, long after the rest had finished and after he himself had discussed such allowance of viands as he felt competent to swallow. Long, indeed, after signs of impatience had been manifested all round the board, till chairs were pushed back, till the talk flagged, till silence fell. Vainly did Caroline inquire repeatedly if he would have another cup, if he would take a little hot tea, as that must be cold, etc. He would neither drink it nor leave it. He seemed to think that this isolated position of his gave him somehow a certain importance, that it was dignified and stately to be the last, that it was grand to keep all the others waiting. So long did he linger, that the very urn died. It ceased to hiss. At length, however, the old rector himself, who had hitherto been too pleasantly engaged with Hannah to care for the delay, got impatient. "'For whom are we waiting?' he asked. "'For me, I believe,' returned Don complacently, appearing to think it much to his credit that a party should thus be kept dependent on his movements. "'Tut!' cried Hellstone. Then, standing up, "'Let us return thanks,' said he, which he did forthwith, and all quitted the table. Don, nothing abashed, still sat ten minutes quite alone, whereupon Mr. Hellstone rang the bell for the things to be removed. The curate at length saw himself forced to empty his cup and to relinquish the role which, he thought, had given him such a felicitous distinction, drawn upon him such flattering general notice. And now, in the natural course of events, Caroline, knowing how it would be, had opened the piano and produced music books in readiness. Music was asked for. This was Mr. Sweeting's chance for showing off. He was eager to commence. He undertook, therefore, the arduous task of persuading the young ladies to favor the company with an air, a song. Con amour, he went through the whole business of begging, praying, resisting excuses, explaining away difficulties, and at last succeeded in persuading Miss Harriet to allow herself to be led to the instrument. Then out came the pieces of his flute. He always carried them in his pocket, as unfailingly as he carried his handkerchief. They were screwed and arranged. Malone and Don, meanwhile, herding together and staring at him, which the little man, glancing over his shoulder, saw, but did not heed at all. He was persuaded their sarcasm all arose from envy. They could not accompany the ladies as he could. He was about to enjoy a triumph over them. The triumph began. Malone, much chagrined at hearing him pipe up in most superior style, determined to earn distinction too, if possible, and all at once assuming the character of a swain, which character he had endeavored to enact once or twice before, but in which he had not hitherto met with the success he doubtless opined his merits deserved, approached a sofa on which Miss Hellstone was seated, and depositing his great Irish frame near her, tried his hand, or rather tongue, at a fine speech or two, accompanied by grins the most extraordinary and incomprehensible. In the course of his efforts to render himself agreeable, he contrived to possess himself of the two long sofa cushions and a square one, with which, after rolling them about for some time with strange gestures, he managed to erect a sort of barrier between himself and the object of his attentions. Caroline, quite willing that they should be sundered, soon devised an excuse for stepping over to the opposite side of the room and taking up a position beside Mrs. Sykes, of which good lady she entreated some instruction in a new stitch in ornamental knitting, a favor readily granted, and thus Peter Augustus was thrown out. Very sullenly did his countenance lower when he saw himself abandoned, left entirely to his own resources on a large sofa with the charge of three small cushions on his hands. The fact was, he felt disposed seriously to cultivate acquaintance with Miss Hellstone, because he thought, in common with others, that her uncle possessed money, and concluded that, since he had no children, he would probably leave it to his niece. Gerard Moore was better instructed on this point. He had seen the neat church that owed its origin to the rector's zeal and cash, and more than once, in his inmost soul, had cursed an expensive caprice which crossed his wishes. The evening seemed long to one person in that room. Caroline, at intervals, dropped her knitting on her lap, and gave herself up to a sort of brain lethargy, closing her eyes and depressing her head caused by what seemed to her the unmeaning hum around her, the inharmonious, tasteless rattle of the piano keys, the squeaking and gasping notes of the flute, the laughter and mirth of her uncle and Hannah and Mary. She could not tell whence originating, for she heard nothing comic or gleeful in their discourse, and more than all, by the interminable gossip of Mrs. Sykes murmured close at her ear, gossip which rang the changes on four subjects, her own health and that of the various members of her family, the missionary and Jew baskets and their contents, the late meeting at Nunnally, and one which was expected to come off next week at Winbury. 
Tired at length to exhaustion, she embraced the opportunity of Mr. Sweeting coming up to speak to Mrs. Sykes, to slip quietly out of the apartment, and seek a moment's respite in solitude. She repaired to the dining room where the clear but now low remnant of a fire still burned in the grate. The place was empty and quiet. Glasses and decanters were cleared from the table. The chairs were put back in their places. All was orderly. Caroline sank into her uncle's large easy chair, half shut her eyes and rested herself. Rested at least her limits. Her senses, her hearing, her vision. Weary with listening to nothing and gazing on vacancy. As to her mind, that flew directly to the hollow. It stood on the threshold of the parlor there. Then it passed to the counting house and wondered which spot was blessed by the presence of Robert. It so happened that neither locality had that honor, for Robert was a half a mile away from both and much nearer to Caroline than her deadened spirit suspected. He was at this moment crossing the churchyard, approaching the rectory garden gate, not, however, coming to see his cousin, but intent solely on communicating a brief piece of intelligence to the rector. Yes, Caroline, you hear the wire of the bell vibrate. It rings again for the fifth time this afternoon. You start, and you are certain now that this must be he of whom you dream. Why are you so certain you cannot explain to yourself, but you know it? You lean forward, listening eagerly as Fanny opens the door. Right, that is the voice low, with a slight foreign accent, but so sweet, as you fancy. You half rise. Fanny will tell him Mr. Halstons' company, and then he will go away. Oh, she cannot let him go. In spite of herself, in spite of her reason, she walks half across the room. She stands ready to dart out in case the step should retreat, but he enters the passage. Since your master is engaged, he says, just show me into the dining room. Bring me pen and ink. I will write a short note and leave it for him. Now, having caught these words and hearing him advance, Caroline, if there was a door within the dining room, would glide through it and disappear. She feels caught, hemmed in. She dreads her unexpected presence may annoy him. A second since she would have flown to him, that second passed, she would flee from him. She cannot. There is no way of escape. The dining room has but one door, through which now enters her cousin. The look of troubled surprise she expected to see in his face has appeared there, has shocked her, and is gone. She has stammered a sort of apology. I only left the drawing room a minute for a little quiet. There was something so diffident and downcast in the air and tone with which she said this, anyone might perceive that some saddening change had lately passed over her prospects, and that the faculty of cheerful self-possession had left her. Mr. Moore probably remembered how she had formerly been accustomed to meet him with gentle ardor and hopeful confidence. He must have seen how the check of this morning had operated. Here was an opportunity for carrying out his new system with effect, if he chose to improve it. Perhaps he found it easier to practice that system in broad daylight, in his mill-yard, amidst busy occupations, than in a quiet parlor disengaged at the hour of eventide. Fanny lit the candles, which before had stood unlit on the table, brought writing materials, and left the room. Caroline was about to follow her. More, to act consistently, should have let her go, whereas he stood in the doorway and, holding out his hand, gently kept her back. He did not ask her to stay, but he would not let her go. "'Shall I tell my uncle you are here?' asked she, still in the same subdued voice. "'No, I can say to you all I had to say to him. You will be my messenger.' "'Yes, Robert.' "'Then you may just inform him that I have got a clue to the identity of one, at least, of the men who broke my frames, that he belongs to the same gang who attacked Sykes and Pearson's dressing shop, and that I hope to have him in custody tomorrow. You can remember that?' "'Oh, yes.' These two monosyllables were uttered in a sadder tone than ever, and as she said them, she shook her head slightly and sighed. Will you prosecute him? Doubtless. No, Robert. And why no, Caroline? Because it will set all the neighborhood against you more than ever. That is no reason why I should not do my duty and defend my property. This fellow is a great scoundrel and ought to be incapacitated from perpetrating further mischief. But his accomplices will take revenge on you. You do not know how the people of this country bear malice. It is the boast of some of them that they can keep a stone in their pocket seven years, turn it at the end of that time, keep it seven years longer, and hurl it and hit their mark at last. What made you think so? Your look, your manner. But look at me now. Moore laughed. A most pithy vaunt, said he, one that redounds vastly to the credit of your dear Yorkshire friends. But don't fear for me, Lena. I am on my guard against these lamb-like compatriots of yours. Don't make yourself uneasy about me. How can I help it? You're my cousin. If anything happened... She stopped. Nothing will happen, Lena. To speak in your own language, there is a providence above all, is there not? 
Yes, dear Robert, may he guard you. And if prayers have efficacy, yours will benefit me. You pray for me sometimes? Not sometimes, Robert. You and Louis and Hortense are always remembered. So I have often imagined. It has occurred to me when, weary and vexed, I have myself gone to bed like a heathen, that another had asked forgiveness for my day and safety for my night. I don't suppose much vicarial piety will avail much, but the petitions came out of a sincere breast from innocent lips. They should be acceptable as Abel's offerings, and doubtless would be if the object deserved them. Annihilate that doubt. It is groundless. When a man has been brought up only to make money, and lives to make it, and for nothing else, and scarcely breathes any other air than that of mills and markets, it seems odd to utter his name in a prayer, or to mix his idea with anything divine, and very strange, it seems, that a good, pure heart to take him in and harbor him, as if he had any claim to that sort of nest. If I could guide that benign heart, I believe I should counsel it to exclude one who does not profess to have any higher aim in life than that of patching up his broken fortune and wiping clean from his bourgeois scutcheon the foul stain of bankruptcy. The hint, though conveyed thus tenderly and modestly, as Caroline thought, was felt keenly and comprehended clearly. Indeed, I only think, or I will only think, of you as my cousin, was the quick answer. I am beginning to understand things better than I did, Robert, when you first came to England, better than I did a week, a day ago. I know it is your duty to try to get on, and that it won't do for you to be romantic, but in future you must not misunderstand me if I seem friendly. You misunderstood me this morning, did you not? Oh, you are different now. At present I dare speak to you. Yet I am the same, except that I have left the tradesman behind me in the hollow. Your kinsman alone stands before you. My cousin Robert, not Mr. Moore. Not a bit of Mr. Moore. Caroline. Here the company was heard rising in the other room. The door was opened. The pony carriage was ordered. Shawls and bonnets were demanded. Mr. Hellstone called for his niece. I must go, Robert. Yes, you must go, or they will come in and find us here, and I, rather than meet all that host in the passage, will take my departure through the window. Luckily, it opens like a door. One minute only. Put down the candle an instant. Good night. I kiss you because we are cousins, and being cousins, one, two, three kisses are allowable. Caroline, good night. Chapter 8. Noah and Moses. The next day, Moore had risen before the sun, and had taken a ride to Winbury and back, ere his sister had made the cafe au lait or cut the tartines for his breakfast. What business he transacted there he kept to himself. Hortense asked no questions. It was not her wont to comment on his movements, nor his to render an account of them. The secrets of business, complicated and often dismal mysteries, were buried in his breast and never came out of their sepulchre save now and then to scare Joe Scott or give a start to some foreign correspondent. Indeed, a general habit of reserve on whatever was important seemed bred in his mercantile blood. Breakfast over, he went to his counting house. Henry, Joe Scott's boy, brought in the letters in the daily papers. Moore seated himself at his desk, broke the seals of the documents, and glanced them over. They were all short, but not, it seemed, sweet. Probably rather sour, on the contrary, for as Moore laid down the last, his nostrils emitted a derisive and defiant snuff. And though he burst into no soliloquy, there was a glance in his eye which seemed to invoke the devil, and laid charges on him to sweep the whole concern to Gehenna. However, having chosen a pen and stripped away the feathered top and a brief spasm of finger fury, only finger fury, his face was placid, he dashed off a batch of answers, sealed them, and then went out and walked through the mill. On coming back, he sat down to read his newspaper. The contents seemed not absorbingly interesting. He more than once laid it across his knee, folded his arms, and gazed into the fire. He occasionally turned his head towards the window. He looked at intervals at his watch. In short, his mind appeared preoccupied. Perhaps he was thinking of the beauty of the weather, for it was a fine and mild morning for the season, and wishing to be out in the fields enjoying it. The door of his counting house stood wide open. The breeze and sunshine entered freely, but the first visitant brought no spring perfume on its wings, only an occasional sulfur puff from the soot-thick column of smoke rushing sable from the gaunt mill chimney. A dark blue apparition, that of Joe Scott, fresh from a dying vat, appeared momentarily at the open door, uttered the words, He's come, sir, and vanished. Mr. Moore raised not his eyes from the paper. A large man, broad-shouldered and massive-limbed, clad in fustian garments and gray worsted stockings, entered, who was received with a nod and desired to take a seat, which he did, making the remark, as he removed his hat, a very bad one, 
stowed it away under his chair, and wiped his forehead with a spotted cotton handkerchief extracted from the hat crown, that it was right down warm for February. Mr. Moore assented. At least he uttered some slight sound, which, though inarticulate, might pass for an assent. The visitor now carefully deposited in the corner beside him an official-looking staff, which he bore in his hand. This done, he whistled, probably by way of appearing at his ease. "'You have what is necessary, I suppose,' said Mr. Moore. "'Aye, aye, all's right!' He renewed his whistling. Mr. Moore, his reading. The paper apparently had become more interesting. Presently, however, he turned to his cupboard, which was within reach of his long arm, opened it without rising, took out a black bottle, the same he had produced for Malone's benefit, a tumbler and a jug, placed them on the table, and said to his guest, "'Help yourself. There's water in that jar in the corner.' "'I do not know what there's much need, for all the body is dry. "'In a morning,' said the Fustian gentleman, rising and doing as requested. "'Will you talk not yourself, Mr. Moore?' he inquired, as with skilled hand he mixed a portion, and having tested it by a deep draught, sank back satisfied and bland in his seat. Moore, cherry of words, replied by a negative movement and a murmur. "'Yod is good,' continued his visitor. "'It'd set ye up while to sup at this stuff. Uncommon good hollands. You get it for firm parts, I think. "'Aye. Take my advice and try a glass on. Them lads it's comin'll keep you talkin'. Nobody knows how long. You'll need proppin'. "'Have you seen Mr. Sykes this morning?' inquired Moore. "'I seen him a half an hour. Nay, happen a quarter of an hour sin, just before I set off. He said he aimed to come here, and I didn't wonder, but you'll have old Hellstone, too.' I seed him saddling his little nag as I passed it back at a rectory. The speaker was a true prophet, for the trot of a little nag's hoofs was, five minutes after, heard in the yard. It stopped, and a well-known nasal voice cried aloud, Boy! Probably addressing Harry Scott, who usually hung about the premises from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Take my horse and lead him into the stable. Hellstone came in, marching nimbly and erect, looking browner, keener, and livelier than usual. Beautiful morning, Moore. How do, my boy? Ha! Whom have we here? Turning to the personage with the staff. Sugden, what? You're going to work directly. On my word, you lose no time, but I come to ask explanations. Your message was delivered to me. Are you sure you were on the right scent? How do you mean to set about the business? Have you got a warrant? Sugden has. Then you're going to seek him now. I'll accompany you. You'll be spared that trouble, sir. He is coming to seek me. I'm just now sitting in state, waiting his arrival. And who is he? One of my parishioners. Joe Scott had entered unobserved. He now stood a most sinister phantom. Half his person being died of the deepest tint of indigo, leaning on the desk. His master's answer to the rector's question was a smile. Joe took the word. Putting on a quiet but pawky look, he said, It's a friend of yours, Mr. Hellstone, a gentleman you often speak of. Indeed. His name, Joe? You look well this morning. Only the Reverend Moses Barclow. To to orator you call him sometimes, I think. Ah, said the rector, taking out a snuff box and administering to himself a very long pinch. Ah, couldn't have supposed it. Why, the pious man never was a workman of yours more. He's a tailor by trade. And so much the worst grudge I owe him for interfering and setting my discarded men against me. And Moses was actually present at the Battle of Stilbro Moor. He went there, wooden leg and all. Ah, sir, said Joe. He went there on horseback, that his leg mightn't be noticed. He was the captain and wore a mask. The rest only had their faces black. And how was he found out? I'll tell you, sir, said Joe. The master's not so fond of talking. I've no objections. He courted Sarah, Mr. Moore's servant lass, and so it seems she would have nothing to say to him. She either didn't like his wooden leg, or she'd some notion about his being a hypocrite. Happen, for women is queer hands, we may say that among we're sound when there's none of them an eye. She'd have encouraged him in spite of his leg and his deceit just to pass time like. I've known son him. I've known son on him just as much, and some of the bonniest and mimmest looking too. Aye, I've seen clean, trim young things that look as dinty and pure as daisies. And with time and body fun him, out to be not but stinging venom nettles. Joe's a sensible fellow, interjected Hellstone. Howsever, Sarah had another string to her bow. Fred Murgatroyd, one of our lads, is for her, and as women judge men by their faces, 
and Fred has a middling face, while Moses is none so handsome as we all know. The last took on with Fred. A two, three months then, Murgatroyd and Moses chanced to meet one Sunday night. They'd both come lurking about these premises with the notion of counseling Sarah to take a bit of a walk with them. They fell out, had a tussle, and Fred was worsted, for he's young and small, and Barraclough, for all he has only one leg, is almost as strong as Sugden there. Indeed, anybody that hears him roaring at a revival or a love feast may be sure he's no weakling. Joe, you're insupportable, here broke in Mr. Moore. You spin out your explanation as Moses spins out his sermons. The long and short of it is, Murgatroyd was jealous of Barraclough, and last night, as he and Fran took shelter in a barn from a shower, they heard and saw Moses confirm with some associates within. From their discourse, it was plain he had been the leader, not only at Stillbro Moore, but in the attack on Sykes' property. Moreover, they planned a deputation to wait on me this morning, which the tailor is to head, and put in, in the most religious and peaceful spirit, is to entreat me to put the accursed thing out of my tent. I rode over to Winbury this morning, got a constable and a warrant, and I am now waiting to give my friend the reception he deserves. Here, meantime, comes Sykes. Mr. Hellstone, you must spirit him up. He feels timid at the thoughts of prosecuting. A gig was heard to roll into the yard. Mr. Sykes entered, a tall, stout man of about fifty, comely of feature but feeble of physiognomy. He looked anxious. Have they been? Are they gone? Have you got him? Is it over? He asked. Not yet, returned Moore with phlegm. We are waiting for them. They'll not come. It's near noon. Better give it up. It will excite bad feeling. Make a stir. Cause perhaps fatal consequences. You need not appear, said Moore. I shall meet them in the yard when they come. You can stay here. But my name must be seen in the law proceedings. A wife and family, Mr. Moore. A wife and family make a man cautious. Moore looked disgusted. Give way, if you please, said he. Leave me to myself. I have no objection to act alone. Only be assured you will not find safety in submission. Your partner Pearson gave way and conceded and forbore. Well, that did not prevent them from attempting to shoot him in his own house. My dear sir, take a little wine and water, recommended Mr. Hellstone. The wine and water was Holland's and water, as Mr. Sykes discovered, when he had compounded and swallowed a brimming tumbler thereof. It transfigured him in two minutes, brought the color back to his face, and made him at least word valiant. He now announced that he hoped he was above being trampled on by the common people. He was determined to endure the insolence of the working classes no longer. He had considered of it, and made up his mind to go all lengths. If money and spirit could put down these rioters, they should be put down. Mr. Moore might do as he liked, but he, Christopher Sykes, would spend his last penny in law before he would be beaten. He'd settle them, or he'd see. Take another glass, urged Moore. Mr. Sykes didn't mind if he did. This was a cold morning. Sugden had found it a warm one. It was necessary to be careful at this time of year. It was proper to take something to keep the damp out. He had a little cough already. Here he coughed in attestation of the fact. Something of this sort, lifting the black bottle, was excellent, taken medicinally. He poured the physic into his tumbler. He didn't make a practice of drinking spirits in the morning, but occasionally it really was prudent to take precautions. Quite prudent, and take them by all means, urged the host. Mr. Sykes now addressed Mr. Hellstone, who stood on the hearth, his shovel hat on his head, watching him significantly with his little keen eyes. You, sir, as a clergyman, said he, may feel it disagreeable to be present amid scenes of hurry and flurry, and I may say peril. I dare say your nerves won't stand it. You're a man of peace, sir, but we manufacturers, living in the world and always in turmoil, get quite belligerent. Really, there's an ardor excited by the thoughts of danger that makes my heart pant. When Mrs. Sykes is afraid of the house being attacked and broke open, as she is every night, I get quite excited. I couldn't describe to you, sir, my feelings. Really, if anybody was to come, thieves or anything, I believe I should enjoy it, such as my spirit. The hardest of laughs, though brief and low, and by no means insulting, was the response of the rector. Moore would have pressed upon the heroic mill owner a third tumbler, but the clergyman, who never transgressed, nor would suffer others in his presence to transgress, the bounds of decorum checked him. Enough is as good as a feast, is it not, Mr. Sykes? He said, and Mr. Sykes assented, and then sat and watched Joe Scott remove the bottle at a sign from Hellstone, with a self-satisfied simper on his lips and a regretful glisten in his eye. Moore looked as if he should have liked to fool him to the top of his bent. What would a certain young kinswoman of his have said if she could have seen her dear, good, great Robert, 
for Coriolanus just now, which she have acknowledged in that mischievous, sardonic visage the same face to which she had looked up with such love, which had bent over her with such gentleness last night. Was that the man who had spent so quiet an evening with his sister and his cousin, so suave to one, so tender to the other, reading Shakespeare and listening to Chenier? Yes, it was the same man, only seen on a different side, a side Caroline had not yet fairly beheld, though perhaps she had enough sagacity faintly to suspect its existence. Well, Caroline had, doubtless, her defective side, too. She was human. She must, then, have been very imperfect, and had she seen more on his very worst side, she would probably have said this to herself and excused him. Love can excuse anything except meanness. But meanness kills love, cripples even natural affection. Without esteem, true love cannot exist. More, with all his faults, might be esteemed, for he had no moral scrofula in his mind, no hopeless polluting taint, such, for instance, as that of falsehood. Neither was he the slave of his appetites. The active life to which he had been born and bred had given him something else to do than to join the futile chase of the pleasure hunter. He was a man integrated, the disciple of reason, not the votary of sense. The same might be said of old Hellstone. Neither of these two would look, think, or speak a lie, for neither of them had the wretched black bottle, which had just been put away, any charms. Both might boast a valid claim to the proud title of lord of the creation, for no animal vice was lord of them. They looked and were superior beings to poor Sykes. A sort of gathering and trampling sound was heard in the yard, and then a pause. Moore walked to the window. Hellstone followed. Both stood on one side, the tall junior behind the undersized senior, looking forth carefully, so that they might not be visible from without. Their sole comment on what they saw was a cynical smile flashed into each other's stern eyes. A flourishing oratorical cough was now heard, followed by the interjection, Wished! Designed, as it seemed, to still the hum of several voices. Moore opened his casement an inch or two to admit sound more freely. Joseph Scott! began a snuffling voice. Scott was standing sentinel in the counting house door. Might we inquire if your master be within and is to be spoken to? He's within, I, said Joe nonchalantly. Would you then, if you please, emphasis on you, have the goodness to tell him that twelve gentlemen wants to see him? He'd happen ax what for, suggested Joe. I would as well tell him that at the same time. For a purpose, was the answer. Joe entered. Please, sir, there's twelve gentlemen wants to see ye for a purpose. Good, Joe. I'm their man. Sugden, come when I whistle. Moore went out, chuckling dryly. He advanced into the yard, one hand in his pocket, the other in his waistcoat, his cap brim over his eyes, shading in some measure their deep, dancing ray of scorn. Twelve men waited in the yard, some in their shirt sleeves, some in blue aprons. Two figured conspicuously in the van of the party. One, a little dapper, strutting man with a turned-up nose, the other, a broad-shouldered fellow, distinguished no less by his demure face and cat-like, trustless eyes than by a wooden leg and stout crutch. There was a kind of leer about his lips. He seemed laughing in his sleeve at some person or thing. His whole air was anything but that of a true man. "'Good morning, Mr. Barraclough,' said Moore debonairly for him. "'Peace be unto you,' was the answer, Mr. Barraclough entirely closing his naturally half-shut eyes as he delivered it. "'I'm obliged to you. Peace is an excellent thing. There's nothing I more wish for myself. But that is not all you have to say to me, I suppose. I imagine peace is not your purpose?' "'As to our purpose,' began Barraclough, "'it's one that may sound strange and perhaps foolish to ears like yours.' the chowder of the world in their generation than the chowder of light. To the point, if you please, and let me hear what it is. Yes, here, sir. If I cannot get it off, there's eleven behint can help me. It is a grand purpose, and, changing his voice from half-sneer to a whine, it's the Lord's own purpose, and that's better. Do you want a subscription to a new ranter's chapel, Mr. Barraclough? Unless your errand be something of that sort, I cannot see what you have to do with it. I hadn't that duty on my mind, sir, but as Providence has led you to mention the subject, I'll make it in my way to take only trifle you may have to spare. The smallest contribution will be acceptable. With that, he doffed his hat and held it out as a begging box, a brazen grin at the same time crossing his countenance. If I gave you sixpence, you would drink it. Barraclough uplifted the palms of his hands and the whites of his eyes, evincing in the gesture a mere burlesque of hypocrisy. You seem a fine fellow, said Moore, quite coolly and dryly. 
You don't care for showing me that you are a double-dyed hypocrite, that your trade is fraud. You expect indeed to make me laugh at the cleverness with which you play your, your coarsely farcical part, while at the same time you think you are deceiving the men behind you. Moses' countenance lowered. He saw he had gone too far. He was going to answer when the second leader, impatient of being hitherto kept in the background, stepped forward. This man did not look like a traitor, though he had an exceedingly self-confident and conceited air. Mr. Moore, commenced he, speaking also in his throat and nose, and enunciating each word very slowly, as if with a view to giving his audience time to appreciate fully the uncommon elegance of the phraseology. It might perhaps justly be said that reason rather than peace is our purpose. We come, in the first place, to request you to hear reason, and should you refuse, it is my duty to warn you, in very decided terms, that measures will be had resort to, he meant resource, which will probably terminate in, in bringing you to a sense of the unwisdom of the, the foolishness which seems to guide and guard your proceedings as a tradesman in this manufacturing part of the country. Hem. Sir, I would beg to allude that as a furriner, coming from a distant coast, another quarter and hemisphere of this globe, thrown, as I may say, a perfect outcast on these shores, the cliffs of Albion, you have not that understanding of hus and were ways which might conduce to the benefit of the working classes. If, to come at once to particulars, you'd consider to give up this here mill and go without further protraction straight home to where you belong, it'd happen be as well. I can see not again such a plan. What have you to say, tolt lads? Turning round to the other members of the deputation, who responded unanimously, Hear, hear! Bravo, Noah O'Tams! murmured Joe Scott, who stood behind Mr. Moore. Moses'll never beat that! Cliffs the Albion into other hemisphere! My sturdy, did ye come from the Antarctic zone, master? Moses is dished! Moses, however, refused to be dished. He thought he would try again. Casting a somewhat ireful glance at Noah O'Tims, he launched out in his turn, and now he spoke in a serious tone, relinquishing the sarcasm which he found had not answered. Or ever you set up the pole of your ten amangus, Mr. Moore, we lived in peace and quietness. Yea, I may say in all love and kindness. I am not myself an aged person as yet, but I can remember as far back as maybe some twenty years when hand labor were encouraged and respected, and no mischief maker had ventured to introduce these here machines which is so pernicious. Now, I'm not a cloth dresser myself, but by trade a tailor. How siver my heart is of a softish nature. I'm a very feeling man, and when I see my brethren oppressed, like my great namesake of old, I stand up for him, which intend I this day speak with you face to face, and advises you to part with your infernal machinery and take on more hands. What if I don't follow your advice, Mr. Barraclough? The Lord pardon you. The Lord soften your heart, sir. Are you in connection with the Wesleyans now, Mr. Barraclough? Praise God. Bless his name. I'm a joined methody. Which in no respect prevents you from being at the same time a drunkard and a swindler. I saw you one night a week ago laid dead drunk by the roadside as I returned from Stillborough Market. And while you preach peace, you make it the business of your life to stir up dissension. You no more sympathize with the poor who are in distress than you sympathize with me. You incite them to outrage for bad purposes of your own. So does the individual called Noah of Thames. You two are restless, meddling, impudent scoundrels, whose chief motive principle is a selfish ambition, as dangerous as it is puerile. The persons behind you are some of them honest, though misguided men, but you two I count altogether bad. Barraclough was going to speak. Silence! You have had your say, and now I will have mine. As to being dictated to by you, or any Jack, Jim, or Jonathan on earth, I shall not suffer it for a moment. You desire me to quit the country. You request me to part with my machinery. In case I refuse, you threaten me. I do refuse, point blank. Here I stay, and by this mill I stand, and into it will I convey the best machinery inventors can furnish. What will you do? The utmost you can do, and this you will never dare to do, is to burn down my mill, destroy its contents, and shoot me. What then? Suppose that building was a ruin and I was a corpse. What then? You lads behind these two scamps? Will that stop invention or exhaust science? Not for the fraction of a second of time. Another and better gig mill would rise on the ruins of this, and perhaps a more enterprising owner come in my place. Hear me, I'll make my cloth as I please, and according to the best lights I have. 
and its manufacturer I will employ what means I choose. Whoever after hearing this shall dare to interfere with me may just take the consequences. An example shall prove I'm in earnest. He whistled shrill and loud. Sugden, his staff and warrant, came on the scene. Moore turned sharply to Barraclough. You were at Stillbrow, said he. I have proof of that. You were on the moor. You wore a mask. You knocked down one of my men with your own hand. You, a preacher of the gospel. Sugden, arrest him. Moses was captured. There was a cry and a rush to rescue, but the right hand, which all the while had lain hidden in Moore's breast, reappearing, held out a pistol. Both barrels are loaded, said he. I'm quite determined. Keep off. Stepping backwards, facing the foe as he went, he guarded his prey to the counting house. He ordered Joe Scott to pass in with Sugden and the prisoner and to bolt the door inside. For himself, he walked backwards and forwards along the front of the mill, looking meditatively on the ground, his hand hanging carelessly by his side, but still holding the pistol. The eleven remaining deputies watched him some time, talking under their breath to each other. At length, one of them approached. This man looked very different from either of the two who had previously spoken. He was hard-favored, but modest and manly-looking. "'I've not much faith in Moses Barraclough,' said he. "'And I would speak a word to you myself, Mr. Moore. It's out of no ill will what I'm, that I'm here for my part. It's just to make an effort to get things straightened, for they're sorely a-crooked. You see, we're ill off, very ill off. We're families as poor and pined. We're thrown out work with these frames. We can get naught to do. We can earn naught. What is to be done? Mun we say wished, and lick us down in deep. Nay, I've no grand words at my tongue's end, Mr. Moore, and I feel that it would be a low principle for a reasonable man to starve to death like a dumb crater. I won't do it. I'm not for shedding blood. I neither kill a man nor hurt a man, and I'm not for pulling down mills and breaking machines. For, as ye say, that way of going on will never stop invention. But I'll talk. I'll make as big a din as ever I can. Invention may be all right, but I know it isn't right for poor folks to starve. Them that governs mun find a way to help us. They mun make fresh orderations. You'll say that's hard to do. So much louder mun we shout out then, for so much slacker will the Parliament men be to set out on a tough job. Worry the Parliament men as much as you please, said Moore, but to worry the mill owners is absurd, and I for one won't stand it. You're a rate hard on, returned the workman. Won't ye give us a bit of time? Won't ye consent to make your changes rather more slowly? Am I the whole body of clothiers in Yorkshire? Answer me that. You're in your sound. And only my sound. And if and only myself. And if I stopped by the way of an instant while others are rushing on, I should be trodden down. If I did as you wish me to do, I should be bankrupt in a month. And would my bankruptcy put bread into your hungry children's mouths? William Farron, neither to your dictation nor to that of any other will I submit. Talk to me no more about machinery. I will have my own way. I shall get new frames in tomorrow. If you broke these, I would still get more. I'll never give in. Here the mill bell rang twelve o'clock. It was the dinner hour. Moore abruptly turned from the deputation and re-entered his counting house. His last words had left a bad, harsh impression. He at last had failed in the disposing of a chance he was lord of. By speaking kindly to William Farron, who was a very honest man, without envy or hatred of those more happily circumstanced than himself, thinking it no hardship and no injustice to be forced to live by labor, disposed to be honorably content if he could but get work to do, Moore might have made a friend. It seemed wonderful how he could turn from such a man without a conciliatory or a sympathizing expression. The poor fellow's face looked haggard with want. He had the aspect of a man who had not known what it was to live in comfort and plenty for weeks, perhaps months, past. And yet there was no ferocity, no malignity in his countenance. It was worn, dejected, austere, but still patient. How could Moore leave him thus with the words, I'll never give in, and not a whisper of goodwill or hope or aid? Farron, as he went home to his cottage, once, in better times, a decent, clean, pleasant place, but now, though still clean, very dreary, because so poor, asked himself this question. He concluded that the foreign mill owner was a selfish and unfeeling, and he thought, too, a foolish man. It appeared to him that emigration, had he only the means to emigrate, would be preferable to service under such a master. He felt much cast down, almost hopeless. On his entrance, his wife served out, an orderly sort, such dinner as she had to give him in bairns. It was only porridge and too little of that. Some of the younger children asked for more when they had done their portion, an application which disturbed William much. 
While his wife quieted them as well as she could, he left his seat and went to the door. He whistled a cheery stave, which did not, however, prevent a broad drop or two, much more like the first of a thunder shower than those which oozed from the wound of the gladiator, from gathering on the lids of his gray eyes and plashing thence to the threshold. He cleared his vision with his sleeve, and the melting mood over, a very stern one followed. He still stood brooding in silence when a gentleman in black came up. A clergyman, it might be seen at once, but neither Halstone nor Malone, nor Don nor Sweeting. He might be forty years old. He was plain-looking, dark-complexioned, and already rather gray-haired. He stooped a little in walking. His countenance, as he came on, wore an abstracted and somewhat doleful air, but in a poaching fair, and he looked up, and then a hearty expression illuminated the preoccupied, serious face. "'Is it you, William? How are you?' he asked. "'Middling, Mr. Hall. How are ye? Will you step in and rest ye?' Mr. Hall, whose name the reader has seen mentioned before, and who indeed was vicar of Nunnally, of which parish Farron was a native, and from whence he had removed but three years ago to reside in Briarfield, for the convenience of being near Hollow's Mill, where he had obtained work, entered the cottage, and having greeted the good wife and the children, sat down. He proceeded to talk very cheerfully about the length of time that had elapsed since the family quitted his parish, the changes which had occurred since. He answered questions touching his sister Margaret, who was inquired after with much interest. He asked questions in his turn, and at last, glancing hastily and anxiously round through his spectacles, he wore spectacles for he was short-sighted, at the bare room and at the meager and wan faces of the circle about him, for the children had come round his knee, and the father and mother stood before him, he said abruptly, And how are you all? How do you get on? Mr. Hall, be it remarked, though an accomplished scholar, not only spoke with a strong northern accent, but on occasion used freely north country expressions. We get on poorly, said William. We're all out of work. I've sold most of the household stuff, as you may see, and what we're to do next, God knows. Has Mr. Moore turned you off? He has turned us off, and I've such an opinion of him now that I think if he'd take me on again tomorrow, I wouldn't work for him. It is not like you to say so, William. I know it isn't, but I'm getting different to myself. I feel I am changing. I wouldn't heed if the barons and the wife had left to live on, but they're pinched, they're pined. Well, my lad, and so are you. I see you are. These are grievous times. I see suffering wherever I turn. William, sit down. Grace, sit down. Let us talk it over. And in order to better talk it over, Mr. Hall lifted the least of the children onto his knee and placed his hand on the head of the next least. But when the small things began to chatter to him, he bade them wished, and fixing his eyes on the grate, he regarded the handful of embers which burned there very gravely. Sad times, he said, and they last long. It is the will of God. He will be done, but he tries us to the utmost. Again he reflected, You've no money, William, and you've nothing you could sell to raise a small sum? No, I've sell to chest of drawers and a clock, and a bit of a mahogany stand, and to wife's bonny tea tray and set of chini that she brought for a portion when we were wed. And if somebody lent you a pound or two, could you make any good use of it? Could you get into a new way of doing something? Farron did not answer, but his wife said quickly, I am sure he could, sir. He's a very contriving chap, is our William. If he'd two or three pounds, he could begin selling stuff. "'Could you, William?' "'Please, God,' returned William deliberately. "'I could buy groceries and bits of tapes and thread, "'and what I thought would sell, "'and I could begin Hawkins at first. "'And you know, sir,' interposed Grace, "'you're sure William would neither drink nor idle nor waste in any way. "'He's my husband, and I shouldn't praise him, "'but I will say there's not a sober, honester man in England, nor he is. "'Well, I'll speak to one or two friends, "'and I think I can promise to let him have five pounds in a day or two. "'As a loan, you mind, not a gift. "'He must pay it back.' I understand, sir. I'm quite agreeable to that. Meantime, there's a few shillings for you, Grace, just to keep the pot boil until custom comes. Now, Baron, stand up in a row and say your catechism while your mother goes and buys some dinner, for you've not had much today, I'll be bound. You begin, Ben. What is your name? Mr. Hall stayed till Grace came back. Then he hastily took his leave, shaking hands with both Farron and his wife. Just at the door, he said to them a few brief but very earnest words of religious consolation and exhortation, with a mutual, God bless you, sir. God bless you, my friends. They separated. Okay, so in these chapters, we have a little bit more than we did last time. Um, we have 
more character development, more plot development, obviously, um, but we're introduced a little bit more to some of the characters. Um, we're kind of seeing things from not the opposite perspective so much as just a more internal versus external perspective, I would say. Um, we see a lot from Caroline, who of course is in love with Robert. We knew that that was going to happen. <laughs> we knew that there would be some kind of love interest at some point. Uh, it was just a matter of time. And here we are. Um, but she, I think, is so beyond being able to see any faults in Robert that if she would have been present, I think um, I think Charlotte got it like spot on that she would have excused basically any kind of behavior or action from him uh, with some kind of excuse. She would have been able to say that he was still great and perfect and totally worthy of loving and praise and all of that fun stuff because she's in love with him. Again, if you've listened to any previous uh, texts that we've done together, you would know that being in love with your cousin during this time was not abnormal. Um, obviously, that's not something I would condone, um, but keeping in mind a contextual lens for looking at the text, that was not something abnormal or something that would have been frowned upon. Um, it would have been a perfectly normal and valid thing for her. Um, I think the things that are most important in these chapters um, and things to keep in mind moving forward is that Robert is so, I think, caught up in the mess now that he's not able to, he's not open to receiving any information that may go against what he already believes. He reminds me a lot of Tom Tulliver from The Mill on the Floss, where he has these beliefs or these convictions that are so strongly held because they have been held for so long that if someone was to present him with information that may even remotely go against what he believes, he would not be able to take it in. He would not be able to process it. He would not pay it any mind. Um, and that's really starting to bite Robert in the butt, you know? Like, we see at the end this good guy coming and being like, we know that, like, science and innovation and whatnot are never going to stop, but there's so many of us that's suffering and Parliament's not doing anything about it. Like, do you think maybe you could just do all of this a bit slower, give us more time, like hire a few more people and put this off for a little while longer just so that we're not starving, um, just so our families aren't starving? And Robert immediately shuts that down. I think that's going to have sincere ramifications moving forward. I think that alone may be one of the main things that makes things difficult for him. Um, and the other thing I think to keep in mind is this trend that we see with Caroline and her uncle about marriage being bad and marriage being something that always kind of sours. And I think that will be an interesting trend to track throughout the text because that seems to be a relatively widely held belief amongst the men that we are kind of following, I suppose, um, is that there's always some kind of problem or deep dissatisfaction or something of the kind when we are hearing about marriage or potential marriage or divorce, all of that stuff. So I think that's another trend that we should keep an eye out for when moving forward, um, just to see how that develops and where that may take us and when it will be important to kind of draw on that knowledge. So with all of that in mind, I am excited to see where this goes, and I hope that the kind of slow uptake isn't taking a toll on you guys and you're able to still enjoy this text while we are kind of building into the the more exciting parts, the more enjoyable parts, um, 
we haven't met Shirley yet. <laughs> we still have a little ways to go before we get to the, the namesake character. So keep with it. I know it's a lot, but we will get to more exciting parts. I promise it's just a little bit of, of building to get there. Thanks for listening. This has been Chapter 6 through 8 of Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. Stay tuned for Thursday's episode where we look at chapters 9 through 12.